Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. You can find me on Facebook at Galen Trombley, on Instagram at Galen Trombley, and on YouTube at Galen Trombley. Spelling G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y. Enjoy the show. On episode 12 of the Galen Trombley Show, we have Scott Brightwell. Uh, Scott is a friend of mine that I met a couple years back. Uh, we talk about his extensive background, his traveling, um, his career in photography. We also start talking about his dome dome home, butchering, um, podcasts, what he actually does for his job, and why he's an adrenaline junkie. I hope you enjoy episode 12 of the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Welcome to episode 12 of the Galen Trombley Show. Uh, today, my guest is Scott Brightwell. Um, Scott, I've known for a couple years now, and he's a very interesting um, guy, and there's a lot to talk about, and I'm sure you guys will enjoy this conversation very much. Um, Scott, welcome to the Galen Trombley Show. Thank you for coming on. I know we've been trying to schedule this for a couple day, or a couple weeks, but we're finally doing it, so I'm excited. All right. Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so me, me and Scott, we met... Probably two, three, two, three four, years ago. I don't know, years ago, depending on yeah. on when or where it was. But uh, we met through um, CrossFit, and I mean, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. But there's obviously a lot of other stuff that you do that I found out, and I think we, we've joked that we've talked at the, the gym or just yeah. around, and we just kind of talk, talk, talk. And I almost wish we had a recorder at that point to, to put on a podcast, <laughs> but we didn't. So today we actually do. We're actually going to... Uh, allow you guys to, to, to creep in on the conversation. So, uh, Scott, for the first thing is just kind of introduce yourself, let people know, you know, kind of where you came from. How'd you get to 2019? Um, Scott Brightwell. Sure. Well, um, let's see. Um, uh, I was born in East Tennessee in 1969. Um, I grew up in the deep South. Uh, I'm currently married to, uh, Gina Schweitzer and, uh, we have two kids. A three-year-old and a seven-year-old, uh, Eleanor and Eli, and uh, you know I've been here in Plattsburgh. We moved into town about three years ago from Peru, and before that, um, in 2006, 2005, I was living in Burlington, Vermont, and prior to that, I had been living overseas in Italy for about ten years. Um, so, what, what part of East Tennessee? Um, I was born in a town called Oak Ridge. My father was a yeah, my father was an engineer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, so my mother was a secretary there, and that's how they met. How long did your, this is going to get weird, how, how long did your uncle work at the engineering plant, or not your father, I mean? Uh, a couple of years, I guess. Like, what years, roughly? This would have been uh, 67 to 69, okay. somewhere in there. So, I have family mm-hmm. in Tennessee, the only family I have, live yeah. in Oak Ridge. No way. So that's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> When you said, I'm like, East Tennessee, I'm like, near Knoxville? And you're like, no, Oak Ridge. Oh, okay. So, um, and the funny thing is my uncle's in the engineering field and so is my cousin. So I don't know if they work, they both work in Oak Ridge. Yeah. So they might work at the same plant. Who knows? There's a lot. Does your family still live there? Oh yeah. A ton of family. So there's a little town just outside of Oak Ridge called Wartburg. That's where my mother was born and raised. And, uh, and I go back there all the time. That's oh, this is that's funny. my family. So I haven't been back since probably 2000, mm-hmm. but I still see them every year. They come yeah. up all the time. But 
Um, oh, that's really cool. I'll yeah. ask you. We won't, oh, we won't, we'll di- won't dive, I guess, too much into it, but I've been to Oak Ridge, so I know exactly where, you, where, you, yeah, yeah. where you're at. But a half hour west of uh, Knoxville, yeah, roughly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I've been traveling there my whole... I mean, I grew up there, so... That is so cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So this, this is what I'm saying. I, I, I know Scott a little bit, but there's a lot of Scott <laughs> I don't know. So there you go. Oak Ridge. I, 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 uh, I love it. Um, so when did you move out of Oak Oak Ridge. So, uh, did you go to Oak Ridge High School? No, no, no. So, um, yeah. So, my background, you know, I'm clearly from the Deep South, and I sort of I washed myself of the accent a long time ago. I, that's even part of the story. But um, I I was born in 1969, uh, December 31st. That will be the last of the 60s kids, apparently. Um, and my at the time, my father uh, was working part-time or working full-time on some sort of internship at the lab. I don't remember. And then going to school at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. So uh, for the first three, two, three years of my life, we lived on a trailer on my uh, great-grandfather's dairy farm in Wartburg. And my great-grandmother, who turns 99 this April, still lives there. Her two sisters live next door in the house that they grew up in. So, uh, you know, that's really my family. My mother's side of the family lives there. And this beautiful piece of land uh, in the hills. Um, so my dad, when he went back to school with his uh, for his internship to finish his schooling, uh, my father always worked and went to school the whole time I was growing up. And so I lived. I grew up in Atlanta from 1971 after the birth of my brother, 72 to about 1979. We lived in various places around Atlanta, and my dad um, finished his. Uh, at Georgia Tech, and then he got a job with a company called Blunt Construction in Montgomery, Alabama, and they were building uh, universities and complexes all over the world, and my dad was doing uh, engineering work for that. And uh, so from 1979 to 1987, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama. I went to junior high, you know, elementary and junior high school and high school there. And then I graduated and went to Florida State University right after that. And I was in Tallahassee from 1987 uh, uh, to 1991. And then I started a photo company there doing commercial photography. Oh, actually, I take that back. I took a year and a half and moved to New Orleans and lived in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana <clears throat> for about a year. And then went back to Tallahassee and opened a commercial studio with a gentleman named Stephen Lukanic, who was a real mentor for me, both artistically and as a, as a person, as a human. He taught me a lot about people in life. Uh, and then uh, I was, did that commercial work for about, so you're 91, 92 to 1995. I started graduate school, and so I worked full-time with the uh, studio and taught at Florida State University and did my graduate work in fine art and got a master's degree in photography. And during that time... And sculpture, and then I uh, won a fellowship to teach overseas. Then I taught. I was supposed to be in Italy for six months, and you know, seven and a half years later, I returned from Italy and ended up uh, on my parents' couch in Orlando. And a buddy of mine named uh, Neil Bednar was on his mother's couch in uh, Boca, I think, or Miami. We're on the phone. He's like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. And I'm like, he's like, well, let's go to Burlington, Vermont, and open an engineering company. And I'm like, all right. So I literally grabbed a U-Haul. My father gave me a truck. I put the dog in it, and I moved to Burlington. And uh, I helped. Neil and I were working on a company called Perseo Engineering, building uh, machinery that sits down and uh, that destroys objects, for lack of a better descriptor. 
And uh, it didn't do very well. He fell in love and moved to San Francisco. And so I started working for IDX, a software company, and doing uh, uh, account management and project management work for them. And then they got bought by GE Healthcare. And then uh, during that time, <clears throat> I, uh, I had a, uh, someone that I had met overseas, Gina, uh, had was living in Baltimore, we had been dating. And then I said, look, I can't do this commute to Baltimore to have a relationship, move up to Burlington. She did. We got a house in Peru and that's how I ended up here. So how's that for the past <laughs> 30 years? <laughs> Again, I'll probably say this multiple times on the yep. podcast. There's a lot of Scott I don't know and, and it, it's, it's all good. You don't all, even know the half of all, it. Yeah, it's all good. Um, so uh, or you met, you said Gina, obviously in Italy yeah. and you know, move back up here. So this was how long ago? You said to the to Bur or to Peru. Yeah. So in 2005, uh, we were living in Burlington, and I was trying to find a house and couldn't afford one in Vermont. And so I started looking on this side of the lake, and that's when um, uh, in fact, funny enough, Kavanaugh Realty. There was a real estate agent uh, that I met. And uh, she literally met me at the boat and we drove and looked at three houses. And one of them was a geodesic dome in Peru right next to the Cabrini Shrine. And I loved it. And so did Gina. And so we ended up uh, buying it uh, a couple months later. And we lived there until, uh, was it three years ago? So 2016 when we bought uh, wow. a house here in town. So what's the dome house like? Because I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll yeah. be honest, I've never... I don't think I've ever been in a dome house. Mm. They don't come up on the market often. And there's only so many. No, so and let like, me tell you, getting funding for one from a bank is tough. Is it? Okay. It's so tough. I, I really don't have no... Yeah. Um, obviously, I'm fascinated by like architecture and, and, and houses and stuff like yeah. that. But I have no idea what a dome house is like. Okay. Like living in one. I mean, I, I know what a dome house is. Yeah. But like, what, what's it like living They're in They're amazing and frustrating as hell at the same time. Um, so let me take a step back. Well, one of the reasons I was attracted to it was for, one, it had 10 acres of land. Okay. And it was lined with these beautiful stone walls, which I really loved. But uh, prior, when I lived in Italy, uh, I would spend, because I taught in the fall and spring and through the winter, I had summers off. So I would do things like, excuse me, I would, uh, I would go pick olives during the recolta, where I would go pick grapes or house sit. And I would spend a lot of time outdoors in Europe and looking at how they treated the countryside and the way in which their culture was embedded in the ground, so to speak, the, what the French call the terroir. And I, I loved it. And so when I came back to America, I always thought, man, I'd like to grow some grapes and make wine. So this 10 acres was perfect. So uh, I thought because it was... Um, I know I live, it feels like we live near the Arctic Circle and making wine here is like the last thing anybody should ever try and do. And I can assure you it was a terrible idea and I made terrible wine, but I had so much damn fun at it. So this 10 acres was really fun because it was on top of a hill. It was very remote. I liked the remoteness and the quiet and the dome. It was like quirky. So uh, my wife, I'll come back sir, around right. in a circle in a second. <laughs> so uh, my wife is an artist. She's an incredible artist. She's much more creative and better artist than I am by far. And when we were looking at houses, it was always pedestrian. It was always normal. And what my friend Steve would always say, it was just 
brown shoes and slacks. There's no character. Mm -hmm. A dome has character. It has so much character, it will break your soul trying to do anything with it. Like so a polka dotted bow tie. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Only a certain kind of person can wear it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, I bought this house, and had I known an, anything about real estate, houses, property, I would have never touched this thing in a million years. <laughs> So it was quite a learning experience. So, you know, we get in there and it's just, um, it's fantastic. So this particular dome was a, uh, geodesic domes are designed based on triangles. So uh, they talk about the sort of ratio of these triangles and the size. Uh, they don't make a lot of domes. This one was made in the 80s and it was part of a sort of a template package. And there are a couple around town. There's one over by the lake, exact same size. One right, right near um, like where Valcor is? Yeah, exactly. Is that the one I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, so it's very similar to that one. Um, and there's a couple of larger ones nearby out that my banker found to use as the kind of home to compare it as a comparison. Yep. But I never saw those. But we got this house. So it's what's interesting was it was sort of a. a it was a split level open air style and the it's based on a foundation where it has a 30 foot it's about 30 feet in diameter half of the foundation was is uh, raised up three steps so it's about 12 or 14 inches high and a giant just massive field stone fireplace in the middle it goes all the way up to the top so uh with a loft style over half of it so underneath the loft you've got a bedroom uh the uh, washer and dryer and a little room in the kitchen. And then you have uh, the sort of living room, dining rooms all in the other half of the dome. And then upstairs is the bedroom and a bathroom. So when you're downstairs standing uh, next to the fireplace, it's 21 feet to the top. It's huge, the amount of space in there. Um, the loft is quite large and cavernous. Um, I could. I literally was flying drone, drones inside. I would take my little <laughs> drones and fly them around because there was so much space. But you go outside and you can walk around the whole thing in 15, 20 seconds because it's so small. Mm -hmm. The footprint of it is astonishingly tiny based on the volumetric space inside because there are no corners to get lost in. Okay. Now, problems. So immediately we ran into all kinds of problems. One, uh, the wiring was all kind of weird but it was as if it had been sized wrong so you know we wanted to make changes to it and we're spending a lot of time scratching our heads why where did these outlets go where do these wires go um, because it's just not a traditional build it doesn't uh, it conforms to the uh, the law but it doesn't make any sense it's a it's a very strange uh, sort of conundrum i loved the fact that um you know, it was my own. It was the first house I ever bought. Yeah. So yeah. I went in there and just made it my own. So we tore down the loft itself and uh, built up half walls. Uh, we found a salvage drop-in jacuzzi tub in Virginia, threw it on top of the forester and drove it all the way up. And I built a, a footer all around it. I must have, we must have laid, I don't know, 2,000 square feet of tile. We tiled the entire dome uh, all the downstairs, all the loft style, including the bathroom with uh, so subway. I was going to ask you this. Yeah. So what's on the wall on the inside? So it had a, f a footer. I forget what it's called like, now. Like, does it look flush or does it look like, like the, the triangle or the, yeah, the triangles you well, see on the outside? There's a, kind of similar? Yeah. So imagine you've got a, uh, uh, you know, you have a bowl and you turn it upside down. So it's in a mm -hmm. circle. Well, uh, you, you have to have walls underneath the circle to, to actually 
have walls to live inside of. So around the bottom of the dome were little four foot sections of wall that would go up. And then from there, there was a transition point that would go up and start the triangles that built the dome itself. The inside of the dome was, um, it was uh, two by fours with um, a drywall on the inside. And in fact, that was one of the things that we hated uh, but we understand why they did it was the drywall um, because it's all built out of triangles. There was tons of uh, uh, mud that they used to sort of make seams and they sort of the seams didn't look really good. So mm-hmm. we spent some time scraping them down and repainting them. And uh, uh, it never got to the point that we really liked it. It was more than we could really uh, we bit off a lot more than we could <laughs> chew in that project. But, uh, you know, the. Uh, but the space itself was fascinating, just really fun, uh, easy to heat. I mean, we had one little tiny kerosene heater in the fireplace, and uh, you know, and that was it. And it stayed very warm in the wintertime because you're heating one-third less volumetric space than you would for a house of the same size. You figure the footprint, a uh, 30-foot diameter circle, is only 700 square feet. Mm-hmm. Yet the inside of the house had over 1,200 square feet of space that you could walk around in because of the loft. So it was great. Yeah, no, it's very cool. I, I, like I said, that, that's just something I've never been in yeah. in like ten years, and I, I, I don't know why I've seen them. Uh, I grew up. There was a, there was one right in Chazy, a pretty big size mm-hmm. one. I think probably a little bigger than what you're describing, but I've again never been in yeah. one, so it's just kind of a, a cool thing. Um, oh, where do we want to go here? <laughs> well, I, I should probably finish describing. Like, oh, do you um, have more on that? Oh, yeah. So, oh, keep, no, keep going. It, yeah. So I'm. I'm one of those people, I always get myself into problems that I can't get out of. Imagine that. So So they had a barn. I turned the barn into a shop. And so I, you know, that way I could build stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But I wanted to, uh, because it's so cold here, I wanted to extend the growing season. I loved having gardens. I got my wife into gardening. And then she promptly got out when she realized I wanted to go hog wild. And she's like, this is too much. So I also built a... um, uh, an inflated uh, greenhouse. So I ordered online a bunch of uh, steel pipe and built a, a Gothic style shaped uh, greenhouse that was uh, 24 feet wide uh, by 24 feet long. It was 12 feet tall in the middle and it had a, um, a blown air plastic uh, roof on it. So I, I essentially sealed and inflated two sheets of uh, plastic for a roof for it, built walls in the front and back. I took a backhoe and dug down four feet and sunk a thousand feet of agricultural tubing and would take the and backfilled it. So I used the ground underneath the greenhouse as a heat sink in the summer and as a heating device in the wintertime so I could extend my growing season like eight weeks in uh, both directions on earlier in the season and later in the season. So we would grow greens and stuff in the wintertime. Um, And it it was wonderful. You could go in there in the middle of summertime and uh, it would dry the air from moisture because i was blowing i was stripping it out underground have you, have you ever watched the uh the movie the martian yes As you're reminding me right now of, <laughs> I'm just i'm just imagining you up on uh, up on mars just growing potatoes so. yeah <laughs> well it was funny was that um i had no intention of it exploding like that but i got so excited and at the time, I was commuting to Burlington five days a week, so I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do. So I'd rush home to do stuff at night uh, or on weekends. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, actually my aunt and uncle in Tennessee who live in Chattanooga, were like, hey, we've got some sheep. Would you like some sheep? And so I got sheep. 
And then, uh, so I had a, a flock of uh, California red sheep for a couple of years. And then I got some milk goats and I got turkeys and chickens and I got two pigs uh, and I raised the pigs. And it turned out that my father-in-law, who's an amazing man. So uh, Otto is a sheriff's deputy down in Roanoke. That's his name, Virginia. Otto? Yeah. Oh, cool. Otto Schweitzer, uh, a good Austrian German family from Long Island. Um, and he sort of, he really took me under his wing and it was like when I got the animals and he's like, you know, Scott, when you're ready to want to butcher, I'll help you because he was a butcher for 20 years, 30 years. So I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. So over the course of uh, a couple of uh, years, I learned how to butcher all the animals and I learned it like in a way that was more apprentice style, not like you go to a class, you know, literally, you know, he would drive up in his truck and we would go out and dispatch a pig and butcher it right there in the snow, drag it back to the garage and break it down. And then he uh, taught me all the, the parts to break it down, how to make it so that it would be easier to put in the freezer and to pull out to make meals, the kinds of things that uh, a butcher would tell you who did it for years and did it for families. So it was like uh, an amazing experience. And so uh, I have a much greater appreciation for where meat comes from now mm -hmm. based on that entire experience. Does he still do it? Uh, no, no. He does it like if I ask him to come up and help but me like butcher. But re like recreationally, meaning yeah. for family or friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. We... Uh, we go up to, um, you ever been to Hemingford, the place up there? They have butcher I've heard of it, but I haven't been there. Yeah, so we go up there every year and usually get meat for Christmas yeah. and stuff. And uh, you go up, and I, I, they don't do a lot of it there, yeah. but you can see it's kind of like the old Rocky movie. They yeah. got all the stuff hanging down, but <laughs> you kind of look at what they do, and obviously yeah. you walk in, it's freezing in there, but yeah. they, I mean, these people every day are doing butchering. Yeah. So I've all, I'm always curious on how that process is because, again, it's, it's like anything with, with uh, food. It's like an art form. Yeah, absolutely. As to how to perfected i guess yeah well even the things like uh, small things like you don't realize how um, how heavy an animal is till you have to move it you don't realize how hard the bones are till you have to cut around them you don't realize that you know uh like the first time we i butchered a lamb or a sheep <clears throat> uh mutton the uh, like a lamb is like oh my god this thing's a like it's a nine months old it weighs a hundred and some odd pounds it's huge what am i going to do for my wife and i with a leg of lamb that's you know nine pounds mm -hmm. it's like well, i got to learn to break that down into something that's usable mm -hmm. so and that's where my father-in-law really uh, was amazing he's like you know cut it like this you know when we broke down the pig the first time that was uh, unbelievable learning experience i'm like uh it had snowed like crazy it was three feet of snow on the ground and the pig had gotten i let it go too long to butcher so it was giant it was like 350 pounds so we're like we're like dragging it through the snow and i'm you know and i was like you know i need a beer and he's like yeah we need a beer so we're drinking beer and butchering this pig and uh and he, the whole time, it's like having uh, someone over your shoulder whispering, you know, this is how you want to do this. He's like, you know, you could break the leg down like this or this, but what you want to do is ham steaks. And I'm like, yeah, because I don't want to do a ham. Or he's like, let's hang it like this. And he would, uh, he goes, here, let me show you how to make sausage. And so we would take the meat and grind it up and he would put so uh, his spices in it. And then we would make 30 pounds of sausage and uh, we would break it up into ways in which we could use it. And it was an incredible learning experience and visceral, the smells, the flavors that came out of that. And uh, so that now anytime I go and get pork, it's like I have an infinite appreciation yeah. for it. Do you, do you still do it now? Like if I had the opportunity, I would. I yeah, still have all the tools. It's a little tougher in the city versus, uh, yeah, versus Peru. I, uh, I have a funny story. So a friend of mine, 
learned to butcher chickens in Berkeley, California. And uh, she was practicing doing it one day in the driveway and the neighbor called the cops on her. And uh, because, and it's not illegal to butcher a chicken in your yard. It's just a little shocking to mm -hmm. uh, the neighborhood when they're not used to it. And I think it's something that I probably was uh, inculcated to uh, pretty early on in life. You know, my mother grew up on a farm. So every summer I would spend weeks or months at the farm. So we saw, you know, my aunts and uncles and great aunts and uncles and my great grandparents, uh, you know, uh, butchering animals. Uh, you know, I remember as a very young kid, my grandmother would go, it's like, we're going to make, uh, you know, noodles and chicken for lunch on Sunday afternoon. And I would go out with her and she would grab a chicken, wring its neck and butcher it right in front of me. And I was like, I don't know, six, maybe yeah. five. So it was never, it never really shocked me. I'd always sort of been exposed to it, but I had never done it. I grew up in the suburbs of, uh, you know, in Montgomery. So this was, uh, what I'm doing, what I've done in the past 20 years was very different than what I did 20 years prior in my life. Yeah, no, that's, um, Actually, one of my buddies who who kind of kind of helped me get into it, he um, into the podcast. He yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Um, he's big into that kind of stuff now. Yeah. He's got a little farm and stuff, and he's. I don't think he do, he doesn't butcher his own meat. He, mm -hmm. he grows the pigs and stuff. Yeah. But he's um, we usually get a pig for. I'm planning on getting a half pig. Yeah. from him this year. But yeah, you know the background of just having to make that stuff. I think it's pretty incredible because think about like most animals, at least from a cow or a pig or chicken yeah. you know the amount that can get broken down so you're really not yeah. wasting anything yep. and then I'm, I'm assuming you can even use there's probably still ways to use the bones and stuff yep. like that because i know like if you, you have a chicken or a turkey you mm -hmm. can make soup and stuff from the bones oh, and or, broth. Uh, broth yeah yeah my wife does that now so we'll um uh, we have, we'll buy like a half a cow at a time. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm sort of real particular. It's like, I want my steaks thick and large, you know, and people tend to make them too thin, I think. Um, but, uh, I always ask for all the bones and I want all the bad parts that people throw away, the kidneys, the awful, the, uh, the tongue mm -hmm. and uh, I'll cook what I love to cook. So like the tongue, you can take it and simmer it all day long, chop it up and put it in tacos. And it's amazing. The, uh, was it the, uh, uh, Mexicans, the Spanish call it lingua, uh, and it's fantastic. But typically people here don't ask for that stuff, and I always ask to get it. And uh, I think that's part of it is once you start butchering, you realize how much you've never seen before in the grocery store, mm -hmm. and you never want to see it go to waste. You want to take advantage well, of all of it. Is that the thing? So when they butcher it, does most of that stuff go to waste, or will the butchers use it for... I don't know. I don't know what happens oh, so to could, it. Yeah. Depending on the person, yeah. I guess. I mean, I personally want to use it all. I yeah. mean, it's like I tried to use as much of it as I could. Um, when uh, when I would butcher the animals, we would take like uh, like the shanks of the pigs and stuff mm -hmm. and make... Uh, shanks are phenomenal. Uh, they're phenomenal. Yeah, the really flavor good. is good. And the thing is, we don't... There's not a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of the diets today, you don't see a lot of people, you know, cooking with those kinds of... Uh, the organ meats and stuff, you know. Liver and onions might be a stretch in some in some respects, um, but uh, yeah, I you know I don't like I don't like to see things go to waste. That's just the way I was brought up, I guess. Yeah, I was brought up with a clean plate club. A clean uh, plate <laughs> clean club. club. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm the same. <laughs> so, uh, so, so the but, the butchering. It, and when did you start doing that? Was that? Oh, this would have been probably 2000 seven maybe okay it's so not too Eight. too long ago so it's kind no, of a new no adventure and i i butchered really right up until we sold the house i had to butcher all the flock before we moved so yeah and i actually filled two freezers and then uh, we ate on those for 
couple of years. Months, years, yeah. yeah. Years. Well, it depends on meat. I was going to say. Yeah, you, there's only so much meat you can eat. Half so. a cow brings us roughly a year, very close. Yeah. We might have to do some ground some ground yeah. beef, you know, to kind of supplement it. But, but you know, you, there's only so much like, you know, some of the meats have a different flavor profile, like lamb, like the, the kind of lamb, like we had California reds, which are this really amazing sheep. They have a, when they're born, uh, that was a whole other experience learning to birth animals and take care of them in the, February here. Um, it's a, like an incubator kind of thing. Yeah. We would set up heaters in the barn and, yeah. uh, but um, the they're born with this totally covered in uh, this fleece that is a brilliant maroon. It's dark, dark maroon, but really rich. And then it grows into this sort of uh, mahogany gray color. And then we shear them and would you know take take it and get it processed. But the uh, they're really interesting in that they produce a medium low quality uh, uh, type of uh, you know for. Uh, fleece and then the um <clears throat> excuse me and then the meat is a very high quality so it's a really it's a very interesting animal and it was a it's a contemporary breed it's not a heritage breed um so the meat from it uh is, doesn't have a very strong flavor and a lot of people tend to think that uh lamb is like oh they don't like it because it has such a strong sort of uh flavor profile um ours really didn't and i think it was a combination of the land of the property or where we were at and what we fed them and the fact that they just um it was the way they were bred, the way they were brought up. And so we cooked a lot with them. And the one of the things we found was like, you know, a leg of lamb a, on a big one can be quite large and you have three or four meals out of it. And so you want to make sure that when you know, you're breaking it down, you're setting yourself up for success so that you're not eating the same thing over and over and over. But uh, I sort of forgot where I was going on this tangent. But you're talking about, you're talking about raising um, animals, like ra yep. like learning how to raise the animals. Yeah, and then sort of the you say raise them, but not actually like grow, grow them. You know what yeah, I'm talking about? Yeah, like, I don't raise know how you, yeah. Yeah, how you put it. But you know, they're what they eat is what you're going to eat, mm -hmm. and so looking at that sort of life cycle, so putting them on the proper kinds of grass, giving mm -hmm. them good hay in the winter time, you know, not giving them grains, and that was sort of the learning curve that we really enjoyed as well was sort of making sure that we were, uh, you know, giving them what they needed to thrive to make sure that the meat would. Take tastes good um, throughout their whole life cycle. Because like I said, when we get the half a cow, they, they yeah. are pure grass-fed, free-range, whatever, yep. chicken, beef. What, the, the difference is night and day. Oh, absolutely. And same thing when you get like um, eggs. Just yeah. I say raw <clears throat> eggs, but farm eggs, mm -hmm. cage, cage, whatever, cage-free, free-range. But when I get, like again, the same guy I was talking about before, um, he has eggs and he gave me a what was it, a goose egg? I think it was mm -hmm. a goose egg. Giant. M massive. And I go, well, how big is it roughly? It goes about five eggs. Like yeah. a five egg, like chicken eggs versus one goose egg. But the goose egg had was so much more gamier. So when mm -hmm. you actually cooked it, it had whatever the, I don't know what the flavoring yeah. is, but gamey is the way I would describe it. And yeah. it was really good. But it was, that's all you needed. You literally cracked that on, cracked exactly. it in the pan. And um, it, it was roughly four to five chicken eggs. Yep. Duck eggs are the same way. Much larger, a mm -hmm. little bit different flavor. But a little, little harder shell to crack yeah. too. Yeah. But the uh, the color of them, you see it immediately. Mm -hmm. They're brilliant yellow. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, and they the, when you drop the oak on a plate, it stands up. It doesn't dribble out. But yeah. you know, it's that level of freshness. Well, I think, um, did you ever see the eggs with the double yolks? Mm -hmm. We would get them all the time. I think they're more yeah. common with the fresh yeah. chicken or yeah. I say fresh chicken free range chickens mm -hmm. but to me it's night and day like yeah it, you can't if you've never had them i i that's something people have to try uh, absolutely absolutely i don't think you'll ever go back or you'll try your hardest <laughs> not to go back to another kind of egg. yeah you don't want to um so what i want to ask we uh i know they kind of all tie in but um 
photography. Yeah. Um, I know this is still a big part of your life and, and obviously has been going back to your backstory yeah. from an early time period. Um, so w- what do you do right, at least right now? What do, what do you like doing with photography? I know I've, you've done stuff at the gym. Um, that's pretty much all I've seen you do, mm-hmm. but I mean, obviously you come in with all the lights and the cameras and the, and the systems, um, that you need for that. Mm-hmm. And they, they're amazing. They come out way oh, better well, thank than you. we take with an iPhone <laughs> or whatever. So, um, so yeah, kind of going to, to the <clears throat> photography. Cause I, I think, um, I have kind of like a limited fascination with it. Meaning I'm, yep. I, I'm fascinated, but I only limited in the sense of my actual understanding and knowledge of it. Yep. Um, I've started to get a little more into it with, things I've done and I'm starting to kind of look at cameras, which I'm probably going to ask you about off air yeah. on, on yep. what to pick for lenses and stuff. But yeah, kind of like a background, which, what's your photography? Well, career? um, let's, uh, I'm going to open another Pandora's box. Because again, this, this could be <laughs> strap in right yeah. now. Cause this could go. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, when I was about, uh, I guess 14 years old, I started training in martial arts. I started training in karate and I on and off have been doing it pretty much my whole life. And I had been, uh, I got, I was pretty good at it. And the reason I took karate was because I was uh, really picked on as a kid. I was smaller, faster, and smarter than a lot of the people around me. And I got picked on. I got really mad and hated it. It was about that time when the movie, The Karate Kid came out. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this is quite a story. Um, And so I started training in karate and then I wanted to go to a tournament. I wanted to compete. I asked my dad, I mean, dad, daddy, I need a camera. And he's like, all right, here, I'll let you use mine. So he gave me a single roll of film on an old Canon FTB, which is an old 35 millimeter camera from the 60s with a 50 millimeter, just a normal lens. And he says, look, all you have to do is put the needle in the circle and press here and take pictures. And I have been hooked ever since. Anything related to the lens formed image has just fascinated me uh, for a lot of different reasons. the engineering behind the tool itself, the camera, fascinates me because of the way in which you can control light, the way in which you can manipulate an image, the fact that I can uh, take uh, a moment in time and manipulate it and transpose it and then provide it to someone else and then they can see something in it. So it becomes a means of communication. So, and this was would have been 87, 86, 85, 84, 1985, 84, somewhere in there. And from that moment forward, I pretty much have been an avid photographer and have shot pictures, if not every day, at least every week, ever since, like ever And there's never since. been a gap in that. Never, no gap whatsoever. And in fact, there have been times when, uh, like when I have my photo studio, I would shoot hundreds of rolls of film a week. Now think about this. This was before digital. So yeah. uh, I taught myself photography. I had never had a class in it. And I taught myself reading books, trying to copy other people, and just experience. So in high school, my first job was working at a little camera store called Camera America, where I sold cameras and worked on the machines processing film and making prints. Uh, when I moved away from Alabama, went to Tallahassee to go to school, my first job there was working in a darkroom for a, uh, a wedding photographer. And then, uh, and in fact, in the summertime, I would work at two different darkrooms. So I'm living in Florida, and I would work at one darkroom from four in the morning till eight and then go work in the other dark room from eight to four and then go back to the first one and work until like 10 at night. So I spent a lot of time learning how to make a print and how to process film and make really good prints. And at all this time I'm shooting 
and this is how uh, how I met the, sort of my mentor, uh, Stephen Lukanic, was that he needed an assistant one day. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. I, he goes, can you load medium format film? And I said, sure. No, I couldn't. But so I get on the shoot and it was clear. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And he laughed it off and said, look, we'll work on this together because I think he loved my enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And we have been best friends ever since. And in fact, I'm going to go see him in a couple weeks and uh, in Florida. But... Uh, the photography has always consumed me making images and I had always taken it from the angle of, you know, I always wanted to get better. How do I get better? That sort of a Socratic philosophy of why, why do I do this? Why does this happen? How can I improve upon it? And then when I uh, graduated from college the first time, uh, you know, with a degree in art history, and then I started my commercial studio, that's when the real learning came about of, uh, the technically I could pretty much do anything I wanted to do in photography. And then I had access to the equipment because I had worked in I had a business partner and together we had a pile of equipment, but it was the artistic side that really was, uh, I was striving for. And it took years for me to realize that that's the more important part. Anybody can learn the technical part, which can't learn is to be creative. And so I went back to school to get an MFA to learn to be more creative. And even my instructors in graduate school were like, why are you back in school? Why don't you just go take pictures? And I'm like, well, I'm missing something. And the whole time I had been taking pictures, I'd always tried to improve the technique. It had nothing to do with technique. It had everything to do with the questions you were asking. What am I trying to communicate and why? And when I realized that's the essence of the artistic side, the creative part, then a whole new world opened up, a world that had infinite possibilities. And that's when I, I really sort of came to this understanding of what the photography really was and really meant. This making lens-formed images and the uh, and being able to communicate something with it. And so I won this fellowship to go teach photography overseas. And so I spent a lot of time honing my uh, creative sort of uh, my, what, what, what would you call it? My sort of uh, artistic style. Uh, doing traveling. So I did a lot of uh, photography where I would just take my camera and just go travel for days on end throughout had all of Europe at my doorstep. And then uh, I would take a, spend two weeks in South Africa or spend a month backpacking uh, across India where all I had was two cameras, 150 rolls of film and one change of clothes for a month. And all I did was backpack and take pictures and travel around. And uh, so, and that's where I really started to um, explore that relationship between the world on the outside of me and my experience and using the camera as a tool to pierce that and grasp other concepts and other cultures and ideas and bring them together. So, uh, and so a lot of the pictures I have of that time period are these, you know, the, my interactions with these people in these other cultures, their, their cultural constructs. I would go and spend hours traveling in, uh, temples in India, just taking pictures of the, the priests, the, 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 the people inside the temple, the, the people coming to worship. And I've really found that fascinating and beautiful. And we, I see that in the images now, the relationship of, uh, you know, the water to people, the air to people, the objects of reverence. And uh, so all this time, I sort of found myself drawn to certain subjects. Like I love shooting people. Uh, find them to be really interesting. And uh, I think the years I spent with Steve with a commercial studio in, in Florida, 
we had to develop a means of talking to people to get them to do things on film. You know, if someone's paying you 100, 200 bucks an hour that they need a photo for a, a particular purpose, you have to be able to get that in a short amount of time. So I developed a lot of tools to be able to do that. But um, it's always a challenge. And, uh, and I always find it interesting in wherever I go. So I always have a camera with me uh, to some degree. And uh, so uh, I don't know, it's sort of because that's, it's a huge no, swath there. But uh, of recent late of what I've been inspired by is uh, CrossFit and the physical stuff. I never shot sports in all those years. And yet when I started doing CrossFit, I started seeing the beauty of the body, the human body in a way I had never seen it. And I was bring, able to bring to bear a lot of the uh, years of experience I had on the image making. So like the first year I photographed the open and uh, I hated the photos because the gear I had was starting to get dated. It was a uh, second generation digital stuff. And uh, I had a rough transition from film to digital. So I didn't really pursue it like I should have. And I think I was sort of behind the curve. And so when I updated my equipment, and that's when I started working, uh, you know, shooting more like at, a, at CFP, at CrossFit Plattsburgh, where I brought in more lights and sort of treated it like a giant studio and to capture stuff rather than just walking around to grab, grab snaps. I don't like to work that way. Mm -hmm. I'm sort of um, I'm much more methodical. And I think the images reflect that. More dramatic light, uh, you tend to see the sort of, I love this idea of backlighting. So you get this sort of holy glow around people's, uh, you know, bodies that's offset by the uh, grimaces on their faces. And then you, uh, I tend to uh, use a lot of wide angle lenses to get up close to people. So you get a sense of the environmental space up against the body and the relationship. So you see the person in space rather than just the body by itself. Yeah, I, I well, I mean, I looked at a lot of them and I think... Okay at least from when we do it in the open versus the ones that you did individually for yep. people, um, they were very well received by everybody. Cause yep. I don't think anybody, cause the thing is a lot of it is stuff you just don't, um, when you actually look at them, you just haven't seen it in that, like you said, yep. in that light before, like, I mean, pun, but like in that light before yep. the sense that, um, when you talk about that glow or just really, really taking out the colors. I mean, I, I've started to kind of understand photography a little bit mm -hmm. more, not, not on your, but just, I mean, yeah. like, you know, simple things as to like editing pictures and, or, um, you know, things like that and, and kind of looking at stuff and, and movies and there's such an art form to it yeah. Yeah. that when you just, even you just bringing lights in and stuff, which is obviously you're looking at it from a very detailed eye where, or very, very, um, uh, you know, a trained eye where <laughs> I'm looking at it very much as just like, Oh, there's a light. Cool. It makes it look a little darker. But then as I started to get more into it, I'm like, yeah. okay, the shadowing, the, the mm -hmm. exposure, the, you know, the light to dark contrast, mm -hmm. the, um, even, I mean, obviously I don't have to tell you this, but like going closer and farther away and all this kind of stuff, like how much it makes a difference. Um, but I think they're extremely good. I know a lot mm -hmm. of people have, have kept them. I'm yeah. sure people have seen them probably on Instagram and Facebook and everything else, yeah. but, um, yeah, Scott, Scott's <clears throat> the guy that does a lot of that. But when you talk about, um, people, it was, was when you started out, was it always people? Was it a lot Cause you just talked also about, um, landscapes and architecture and things. I mean, was did you get in? Was people your first thing, or is no? That kind of I think slow transition? I, well, I you know, there's a, a funny sort of saying. You know, I learned to take pictures so I could learn to get dates. Um, and you know, it's a great way to break the ice, but it's also very intimidating. So when I first started taking pictures, you know, I was in high school, so I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. I was pretty much adult, and uh, I wasn't. Uh, so 
you know, I would read a book about taking pictures of flowers. I would take pictures of flowers. I would read about taking pictures of landscapes. The pictures sucked, but it was a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Every time I would shoot it, try and get better, try and get better, try and get better. And over time, uh, instead of asking myself, why was I taking the picture? I kept uh, moving it towards, excuse me, the, uh, it was more about the technical. How can I capture, how can I freeze motion? Or how can I show the building larger or smaller in relationship to the space around it? And uh, so I became very technically proficient at a lot of kinds of photography. But uh, it wasn't until um, I had my studio and I was able to, in graduate school, when I was able to say, what do I really want to take pictures of? And I think it was people. And I think it got started. I had a, a, an amazing inst- couple of instructors in graduate school. Um, and one of them, his name was Ed Love. And uh, he passed away a number of years ago. But uh, he, he sat, we sat down and we had these long conversations about the concept of creativity and art. And this idea of what, what he was fishing for is what makes you tick? What is that? What, is, what makes you you? And in one of the conversations, he was he was like, yeah, you keep talking about your dad, but have you taken pictures of your dad? And I hadn't. And so it was in this amazing transformative moment when I was like, shit, I got to take pictures of my dad. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I went home that weekend and t- started taking pictures of my dad. And then it clicked. It's like, wow, taking pictures of people is powerful because uh, you're not... If you take the time to do it right, you really, you're not extracting a soul. You're providing a means for other people to connect to them. And it's, uh, and it's a snapshot in time, and, but it's, uh, it's also, it's timeless. So from that point forward, I started to shift my technical components to fit more uh, conceptual constructs. So I spent maybe three or four years shooting with very long exposures. So this idea that I could uh, open up the shutter and take a lot of light and expose a piece of film and then close the shutter and then take the film and make a print. So what you're doing is you're essentially compressing time because during that long exposure, it could be several seconds, several minutes, several hours. You're looking at the world in a way as a human you can't because objects move and become blurry, spaces change. And so I, you know, I think from that moment of when I started taking pictures of like when I started taking pictures of my father, from that point forward, I started changing how I addressed photography in general. And that was probably in 1996 or 97. And it was, it was really uh, uh, transformative from a creative standpoint. And then when I moved overseas, but uh, soon thereafter, I spent a lot of time doing, I, don't, I wouldn't call it travel photography. I would call it um, sort of, uh, I, did, I still did a lot of the sort of oddball angles with wide angle lenses and long exposures to make things blurry. But, um, and I still took a lot of pictures of people. But the, um, it wasn't until I got back to America when I really wanted to uh, change my style a little bit and shoot more people. And so now, you know, like even today, it's like I offer people, let me go take pictures of you. Let me take pictures of you as a person. What can I get of your character out into an image so that uh, I see something that excites me and is different than what I see from you in real in reality, but also it's something that we both can agree upon is really interesting and fascinating. And I think that's uh, using the photography is a unique medium for that. 
And the problem, I think, on top of all this is that uh, digital imaging, with everybody having a camera on their phone, the value of photography is plummeted. So it's really hard to make a living at it. That's why I do something else. It's, I make a lot more money doing other things, but that passion to still make the image is still there. And you're still doing that, like you said, weekly. Oh, every day. Now, every now day. When, you, when you take a photo, so like if we were to go into your car, you, yeah. probably, got a, you probably got a camera sitting there. Uh, or if not, you have one right by your front door, probably. Yeah, there's. It's well, I have one of like thirty at the house, yeah. so there's lots of cameras. And the problem is, one of the things is that um, I don't, I don't like to carry around a brick all day long. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I like having a camera. I hate missing the image. But sometimes, and I found myself the older I get, the less I want to take a snap just because I like it, I want to build the image. I want to bring in the perfect subject with the perfect background, with the perfect light. And you see that in the images that I shoot in CrossFit. Mm -hmm. It's not just a a person lifting a weight. It's... uh, you know, it's Kyle with a 200-pound uh, overhead squat at the bottom of the squat. He's mm-hmm. trying to come out. He's struggling, and you have this under be- a lot of tension. Under yeah. a lot of tension, mm-hmm. this beautiful light is coming in, and you can see the sweat rivulets coming down on his face. And uh, the you see the people in the background screaming at him. You don't you don't get that just as a snap. You really have to build that image each layer at a time. The subject, the background, the quality of the light, the streaming light from one side. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, choosing to print it in black and white, not in color, you know, because you want to extend that reality into a different world. So, no, I think it's fascinating. <laughs> well, no, I, th- I think it's cool because, like, the ones you send us, you you send um, both color and black and white. Mm-hmm. But I think there's it, there's a big difference between a black and white image versus a color image. Now, I yep. don't know if it's by stripping out the color you take away that sense, and then you really focus mm-hmm. you focus on more. Um, do you, um, you probably do podcast guy, but, uh, like Jocko, mm-hmm. Willing, Jocko Willing, yeah. like, have you ever seen his, um, anything that he does like Instagram or whatever, it's always yeah. black and white. Yeah. He very rarely puts color on yeah. and you kind of look at it and it's a picture of his watch or it's a picture yeah. of a kettlebell or yeah. if it's a 4 a.m. workout. Yeah. yeah or, it's, or it's a picture <laughs> of a wave or a picture yeah. of whatever, but mm-hmm. it's black and white. So then it really goes from like, like I said, a snapshot of just yep. taking up like a picture of my, like a garbage can here. Yep. But all of a sudden you put it in black and white and now it just seems like for some reason it's mm-hmm. intensified that you're not looking at the color. You're looking at the, the specific object in the mm-hmm. photo. And I think, it, I think it draws more thought out of it. Yep. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if that's an actual thing. I, I, I'm just thinking psycho- or psychologically when I look at a mm-hmm. black and white photo, there's more to it. Yeah. I love black and white photography. I just think there's a lot of... A lot well, of character it's, in it. Well, you got to think in terms of, you know, as humans, we see, every, unless you're colorblind, we see everything in color. So, and... Me, me but... Yeah, that, well, that's part I, of it. I can still see color, but it's... If it's I diluted. Screw up. I screw up, yes. <laughs> but the, uh, when you start, when you extract all the color out, you begin to distill things down to their, their essence mm-hmm. to some degree. So, you know, you can have a table, like this table, it's marble, it's in a shade of sort of grayish green and and take a picture of it in black and white, and suddenly it's all these shades of gray, and then you have the black becomes blacker, and the gray areas become lighter, depending on how it's shot. And so suddenly it becomes more than just a table. It becomes a, uh, an object of reverence because you're treating it in a way to elevate its existence in some, in some other way. So black and white does that by pulling out the everyday value of the color and extending it into something where it's much greater. We give it more value. If you look at... a 
you can put two pictures on the wall, people will almost always value the black and white one over the color one because it's a different reality. It's a mm-hmm. different way of looking at the world. And a lot of photography can be done where it's even accentuated beyond that using filters to make the sky darker or the, the snow whiter. And whereas there are pictures of color, but they never seem to have the same weight. And uh, uh, I mean, I got into photography in black and white because that was the cheapest photography I could get yeah, into. Yeah, true. It was yeah. much cheaper yeah. uh, to do black and white. And it was something I could do at home in the bathroom built with my own darkroom. And, uh, but, and that's where I really, uh, working in darkroom for years, I became really good at, I would have a vision for what I would want. I could take the camera, go shoot the film, process the film, make the print, and the print would do what I wanted it to do. That's the, I think, the hallmark of a professional. Whereas someone who's out making snaps, they might get lucky, might get a nice picture of it, but they can't go reproduce it. And that's, I think that's the big difference between a professional and an amateur. There are really good amateurs out there. But uh, when you're doing it on the job, it's you really you have to learn to do it efficiently, cost effectively at a very high quality level. Well, I, I um, you just mentioned this, but like obviously going from the the film days to now digital, mm-hmm. like how big of a jump is that? I mean, obviously that's like night and day because you just talked about like everything you just did. I went, I filmed it brought into the dark room, um, process the yep. film, everything. Cause it's not, it's like the old, the old, uh, Polaroid picture. Yep. Like when you shook it, like you don't know what it's actually going to come out. And all of a sudden, yep. ah, someone's eyes were closed. Like, yep. but now it's like digital. Like I've seen you do, you, you take a picture and you kind of glance down real quick mm-hmm. at it and kind of, I don't know, obviously process it through your brain, you yep. know, what, what, it, you know what yep. it is, but how was, how was that? Like, when did you get in the digital? And then, cause you said you had kind of a difficult time getting yep. into it, but what was, how big of a transition is that? Well, first off, it was expensive. Very expensive. So when I ran my studio, Which one, the getting to digital, digital. yeah, okay. well, both were expensive. So, um, and I think that's where the sort of the watershed moment. So if you think back into the uh, 80s and 90s, with the dawn of uh, personal computing, uh, you could go into an office, uh, a guy would say, look, I've got a secretary, I'm going to buy her a computer, and she can do all the design and layout for the quarterly newsletter. So they do that for about a year and they realize the quarterly newsletter sucks because she's not a designer. She's not a photographer, but she has the tool to do it. So when the first digital cameras came out, it was very much the same way. You had a digital camera, but the quality was low and the uh, using it was very difficult. Film had a whole history and it was a tool set that you could take advantage of. So when I had my studio, we had large format cameras, medium format cameras, uh, you know, large negatives, we had big dark room. Uh, we had multiple people to help us carry the equipment around, uh, around and, and make the images we wanted to make. And in 1990, 92, give or take, um, I had my first real introduction to being able to work with a digital image where I had a client that said, I want you to take a picture of this building and I need you to remove a light pole right in the middle of it. I had no way to do it. So I had to uh, take the slide, uh, FedEx it to New York City, have it scanned onto a Cytex drive, have it sent to a photo retoucher, have it retouched, have the drive sent back to the lab, have them spit out a 35 millimeter slide, and then have it mailed back to me. And it costs like $800. $800. Wow. Now, <clears throat> something I can do on my phone now. So, which yeah. is astonishing. But at the time, you know, we had to rent a cherry picker to take the photos involved. But so 
you know, from that time forward, the first digital cameras were eight or $10,000. And you got to really have volume in your studio to be able to afford that. So I didn't have that. Um, in graduate school, I could make do with film. And in fact, even today with my film cameras, I can shoot a negative and process it and scan it and have a much higher uh, resolution, larger file than I can with any off-the-shelf camera until you get up into the ten dollars or $12,000 range. So there is a balance in the cost for what you get. Now, the watershed moment really came for about eight or 10 years later. The people who could afford the digital cameras could immediately jettison the cost of film. They could take advantage of all the glass they had in their studios. So if you had a big operation, it was totally cost-effective and you made a lot, of, a lot of money and very quickly. So you could corner the market because you could go in and say, yeah, I'll shoot the pictures and it doesn't cost you anything more. And I make more money because I have no costs. Because at the time I would shoot um, like a clothing wear catalog and I would shoot 150, 200 rolls of film for a catalog uh, doing clothing wear for a, say a college or a university. And of that, we would keep maybe a hundred images and send it off to the catalog. So 100 rolls of film at 10 bucks a roll. It costs 10 bucks each roll to get it processed. How, how much film per roll? Like how many pictures per roll? 36 images. If it's uh, uh, 35 millimeter, it'd be 10 or 12 if it was medium format, depending on what we were shooting, whether it was a cover or an inside small inset. Um, so you can figure a catalog would cost me thousands of dollars that suddenly would go into a digital photographer's pocket. So it became very lucrative. Then about eight or 10 years after that, the price of those cameras plummeted. They really came down. So then everybody got one. Then they started showing up in phones. Mm -hmm. And there we start to see a real shift in the culture. This is probably uh, turn of the century, around 2000 or so, well, well, just before and just after. I say phones, if you're talking like iPhones, probably 2007, 8, 9. Well, I was thinking first. before that, even then the point and shoot cameras yeah, really okay, came yep, out, yep. the digital ones. Yep. And then you start to see them really flood the market. And so again, like the computer analogy before, everybody thought they were a photographer because they could take a digital image and then mm -hmm. drop it onto a website. And the photos were awful, but everybody had access and it didn't cost them anything. And I think a lot of photographers suffered in that time. That was one of the reasons why I sort of got out of commercial work was that the quality work that I had and the prices I wanted to charge, you just couldn't get. So I ended up uh, doing more artistic stuff. The um, And... Then when I sort of came back to the States, I got back into doing commercial work on the side. And I was able to pick up digital cameras pretty easily. I could take advantage of all the skills that I had developed using film. And at that time, the quality had taken another shift, another step higher. So I was able to find a great cost-effective uh, sort of middle ground. So you use both styles right now, both digital and mm -hmm. what was it before digital? What you call like what would you call that? Film, yeah. just film, analog, okay. yeah. Okay. So um, I do shoot film very rarely now. I have some specialized cameras that are kind of rare that I like to shoot film with, but for the most part, you know, um, uh, I don't know how much you know about cameras, but <clears throat> you know, a thirty-five millimeter camera, very small negative, mm -hmm. can make small, medium-sized prints. Um, I prefer. I like to see big, big prints to me because that's a sign of. Uh, uh, a level of uh, thought in what you're going to shoot 
Um, so I like to use a bigger negative. So I have a rangefinder cameras that are medium format that I use film. And uh, to buy the digital equivalent would cost me uh, yeah, a car, yeah, eight or $10,000. I just don't have that to spend on the camera, but I have the film cameras and they work great. So I'll go shoot film, mail it off, get it processed. And then I have a, a real high-end film scanner that I use. So the ones you take at the gym, that's digital though? <laughs> yeah, all those are digital. Yeah. yeah. The um, the way in which, you know, shooting in a gym, especially for the open, because uh, you have very limited time frame, very limited space to work. Mm -hmm. um, even when I bring my lights in and light the gym, the, uh, the things are happening quickly. And uh, I like the uh, sort of recycle time of a digital camera. I like to be able to work fast and I can check the work. Mm -hmm. And historically, when I had my studio, in the 90s, I would use Polaroids to check my work. So imagine having to shoot a Polaroid of someone doing a clean and jerk and then have them do it over. And then until you get it right, mm -hmm. just doesn't work with yeah. the open. It's not cost effective. Yeah. And, um, and my shooting style has changed. I tend to shoot a lot more, a lot faster now and a lot more from the hip. Um, I've got a lot of years of experience of knowing where I need to be at the right time. So then I can uh, shoot, a, um, uh, shoot at a much faster rapid rate. Yeah, so that, that it becomes more. Uh, uh, what's the word when you don't have to think about it? Intuitive. Intuitive. Yeah, intuitive. So, um, so for like, so for like right now, it's just more of you don't do any like commission work for that. For oh yeah, yeah you still I, do. I still do. So, uh, like the chair company that my wife works for, Core Three Sixty. I do all. Mm -hmm. I do their photography. All their new chairs and ones are developed or released, and you can go on the website and look at them. Um, occasionally, people around town will hire me. Um, uh, it, I do all kinds of oddball stuff for folks. You know, someone has uh, an idea in their basement. They're like, "Hey, I got a widget. Can you take pictures?" Sure, I'll do it for fun. Mm -hmm. um, I typically just don't do things for free unless I really want to do it, mm -hmm. and unless I'm giving artistic license for it, because. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to devalue other photographers around here who make their living at it. Yeah. And uh, I think it's disrespectful. But if uh, someone was to call me up and say, hey, can you take a picture of Object X for me? I'm like, yeah, and this is what it's going to cost you. And I will give them a real commercial rate. So it's not as if I'm undercutting them. Or like portraits and stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. People, people ask me all the time, hey, can you take pictures of my, you know, uh, senior photos? Senior photos. Yeah. And I'm like, sure, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so, and I find that fun now a lot more so than I did when I had the overhead of a studio and three assistants and, uh, you know, thousands of dollars of, uh, you know, uh, equipment that I was paying off now. My, it's probably less stressful now too. Much less yeah. stressful. Cause you're not doing it for a career. It's more for fun. I think exactly. You, yeah. Exactly. And I tell everyone, I'm like, look, you get what you get from me. You mm -hmm. can have the photos, but I get artistic license and I get first, you know, I do the rejections and I'll give you everything that's left. So it gives me freedom to work like I want to work and it gives them a lot more images. They get a lot more bang for their buck. Mm -hmm. But uh, I have literally notebooks of ideas that I want to pursue that I just don't have time right now because I'm, um, I tend to joke that I, I pissed away a lot of my 20s and 30s having a great time and so now i'm having to make that up with my career so that my family doesn't starve to death and uh but it's funny in that process um the things i learned studying things that don't make money in school and doing experiences in life have really paid off later in life because now oh sure yeah. i can do things i can have conversations with people of different um economic or uh, social groups uh and i'm very comfortable i think photography was a great tool to open that up 
and to be able to talk to people. I mean, I mean have you been to every continent besides obviously Antarctica? I'm assuming you probably no, been there. Haven't been to Antarctica. Know. I've always wanted to go. What about Australia? Uh, haven't been to Australia. So, but, but you've been to five of them at least. Yeah, Africa, you Asia, been to South America. No, I have not been to South America. Oh, you have? Okay. So, no. but, but you said Africa, Asia, Africa, Europe. Africa, Asia, Europe. America. Yeah, so you have obviously a very wide context of, of yeah. people. People yeah. and um, even like you talked about going to India and looking at temples or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a whole other religious aspect yep. that is is something probably around here we have no context over. I yep. want it. I mean, I just go in and be like, I don't understand it as much. Yep. It's cool. It's kind of a, you know, maybe a cultural thing or yep. some kind of um, traditional whatever. But yeah. Um, no, I think that's really cool. Now, now, when you were in uh, Italy traveling, mm-hmm. when you talked about the seven years you were in Italy, yeah. that I'm assuming included the trips to South America yeah. or South Africa to, yeah. to so, India. Excuse me. Yeah. So the um, uh, what I would do is that uh, when I first change my chair here, <clears throat> excuse me. So um, yeah. So in 1997, I won a fellowship to teach and uh, for Florida State University. And so I went and I taught photography and I shot some videos and um, I really liked it there. A new culture and a new sort of a new group of, uh, just, it was new everything to me. And as a photographer, seeing everything in these buildings that were 500,000 years old, uh, the culture, the people were nice, the food was amazing. I fell in love with it. And uh, I immediately, because I tend to talk a lot. I talked myself right into another job mm-hmm. and was able to stay. And the girlfriend I had at the time, she went back to the States. So it was like, all right, well, I'm here. So I literally like overnight suddenly had started a whole new life. I was out of graduate school. I had nothing encumbering me. And I dove in with both feet and said, I'm just going to see where this goes. Mm-hmm. And I had an, an just an amazing experience. So I would teach in the uh, fall and the you know, in the fall and spring. And in the summers, I would house sit for people in the countryside, or I would go and travel. And uh, sometimes I would teach for other institutions just for fun, or I would take groups of students all across Europe on uh, excursions for fun. Um, I would take groups of students to like Amsterdam to art festivals, or I would go to the Biennale in Venice or for a week, for a couple days. The nice thing was, I immersed myself in a culture for a long period of time. And when you travel for vacation, you can't really do that. Mm-hmm, you get, all right, so you're there for a week. You can see a lot. You can do a lot. Two weeks starts to really, you can really sink your teeth into it. If you're there for a month, you, you either have to make the decision to stay longer or go home. Mm-hmm. Because a month, it starts to become a long time. When you decide, well, I'm going to live here for the next year. And it's like, all right, well, that's, you start, you have to change everything Mm -hmm. of the decision making but it gives you entree into that culture that you would never get my students that i was teaching were all most of them were from america or other english-speaking countries they would come and they would say all right i'm going to be on vacation for the next week uh here's my eurorail pass i'm going to hit 12 countries in four days and i'm like and you're going to learn nothing why don't you take that, you know, 12 days, it's four days, five days and spend it uh, in a little tiny town in the mountains and meet the people there, mm-hmm. talk to them, really, you know, and get invited to Sunday dinner with an Italian family where none of them speak English. You mm-hmm. want to have an exciting experience that will do it. And, uh, and that's, I sort of took that to heart and I, I tried to get my students to do that, and uh, and so a lot of my experiences were steeped in that. I want to I want to see this culture from the inside out. So I did a lot of uh, I didn't have a lot of money, 
and I'm still suffering from that. But the uh, instead of traveling all over the Europe uh, all the time, I would just take bus rides into the countryside for three days, just see what's there, hike through the mountains, and uh, with just my camera. So I have lots of pictures of those experiences. Now, uh, what's the, are you talking about the Alps or what's the Italian mountains? Well, it depends on where you are. So in Florence, which is where I was, um, it sits, uh, there's the Apennines, which go through the central part of Italy. Um, And then when you cross the Apennines, you have a a plain, I think it's Po River Valley, and then you go to the Alps from there. So uh, from Florence, uh, you could take little bus trips into the Apennines, into the mountains around Florence. You could go into Tuscany proper, which would be um, south from Florence, going towards Rome and Siena. And then uh, then as you get farther down, there are other mountain ranges all over. Italy's full of mountains. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so the first couple of years I was there, I spent most of my time, almost all of it, exclusively in Tuscany. And then uh, after the first maybe two, two and a half years is when I started taking the big trips, Um, you know, two or three weeks in London or England or, um, you know, a couple trips to South Africa. So you would go weeks at a time. You would do weeks at a time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's like, I really felt like that's the way I was going to get to to learn it. Um, And then like India was like that. Um, And I also, uh, I spent a lot of time... uh, trying to offset my costs. So like, uh, I would be asked, like, do I want to take a group of students on a trip to uh, an art festival in Amsterdam? Mm -hmm. So I would, uh, I was sort of the responsible, irresponsible adult. Mm -hmm. So I would take uh, 10 or 15 students, we would go to Amsterdam and be a part of an art festival or an art group. And then uh, I would get a free trip out of it. And at the same time, I was still, you know, immersed in the arts, and I was teaching things to the students, and uh, and I was, you know, I was a chaperone for the most part. In other cases, I would take groups of students to uh, big art festivals like the Biennale in Venice, which happens every two years. Um, you know, take the students there, uh, show them around, make sure they don't get lost, help them if they get into trouble, and then, uh, uh, you know, and then when you get back, and I go to teach them about you know photography or art history they've got more experiences to draw from so it's uh, really handy to have that do you think europe is the most rich when it comes to art history i uh, would think so but then you then you look at like asia i'm sure has plenty that maybe we're not as as um, as known oh am i, I you wrong know, on that i think every culture has a deep and rich history in art i mm-hmm. think we are um, sort of arrogant in the fact that we think uh western european art is mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. is the uh sort of because Russia's got art. a lot of art too. Ton. Yeah. Uh, I mean, India had a ton of art. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, just tons. Oh, China of, also. I mean, China, all of yeah. it. And China's thousands of years older than mm-hmm. Western. You know, the rest of Western Europe as far as uh, artistic expression. Um, I studied art history as an undergrad, so uh, you know, things. I sort of. I was exposed to a, a lot of different types of cultures of art, um, African art and sculpture. The problem with uh, other cultures and the reason there, it's hard to compare. There's a deep, rich like uh, history of art in Africa, but the tools and what they made it out of was wood. So a lot of it didn't last a long period of time. Yet when you get to Southern Europe, a lot of the artistic expression was made. You know, you figure the Romans and the Greeks, they like used stone, yeah. marble. They've lasted a long time. Uh, so there's a so different mediums have different mm-hmm. longevities and that has impacted how much of it stuck around and um, and there's a saying that you know uh, what is it history is written by the winners so yeah a lot of times uh, yeah. you know uh, a culture comes in and overtakes another one and they wipe out what was left mm-hmm. so and it's not uh, 
revered in the way that it should. And I think that's probably was probably the biggest disappointment um, coming out of school. I had a lofty ideals of what art was and what it should be and the lack of value our culture places on artistic expression and the giving people the ability and the time and space to pursue it. Um, it's just astonishingly, uh, it saddens me all the time that we put so little effort on making things beautiful here in America in particular. What was funny was, um, so one of the girls I had on, um, Brittany, mm-hmm. she, she, she did the podcast, good friend of mine. Actually, she's actually doing some work commission i guess commission work mm-hmm. I'm, I'm new to the, the lingo here but she's doing some commission work for me for the office yeah and she literally said the exact same thing you just said but different things she's she's yeah. big into painting she's very artistic yep. girl yep. and uh but that was her thing she said the same thing she goes i'll look at a photo and i'll get upset because there's just there's a lack of creativity or a lack mm-hmm. of of you know um really emphasis put on certain parts of the photo where she yeah. i'm like i've seen her like paint like she's mm-hmm. Like she's in a trance, like she's just doing yeah. her thing, yeah, and kind of like an out of body experience. But it's funny um, how you, you and her, kind of from different backgrounds, say the exact mm-hmm. same thing. There's not mm-hmm. as much, um, I guess, thought or value or creativity or or effort put into some paintings. Now maybe the person doing it would argue, yeah. but I, I but I, it's funny when you hear somebody that's really into and really has a passion mm-hmm. for over. I say um, like really going like layers deep in the yep. photo not just like you said take a snapshot and then yep. it's it's what you see but like all the really fine intricate mm-hmm. parts of the photo um well to that to that point um so i think our culture really devalues it for a lot of reasons someone says oh yeah i'm a painter and a lot of people on the street will look at them like how do you make your rent yet well that's my thing in it- europe you could say I'm a painter and people you're revered. It's like, yeah. it's like you're holy suddenly because you, they're, you're given that opportunity and they really respect that at all levels. We just don't see that here in America. Well, I, I yeah, I'd agree. Cause usually kind of like a joke, if you go to like an art school or what you said, mm-hmm. like a fine arts degree, it's like yeah. kind of one, it's like, well, good luck making a living off of it. It's like yeah. a writer. Like I went for writing. Yeah. Brilliant mind has like the work, but the, <clears throat> the problem, like, I think what you said was, <clears throat> the good and bad of technology, how it's gotten better. Mm-hmm. It's saturated the market in the sense that me, who's as novice as you can get of a photographer mm-hmm. can still put stuff out that yeah. somebody without a trained eye would, would say is good enough to rival yeah. someone that's professional. Yep. And it's not, not even close, but when people aren't trained in that certain aspect, yep. it's just kind of, it's like me. If I went to buy a camera, mm-hmm. if I went and bought a camera and just said, well, it takes photos and you're like, well, here's the ding, ding, you know, here's the bells and whistles of this and why this is better. And, be- and yep. like, and, but it's like, ah, I just don't want to spend the money for it. Cause I can take a picture. Mm-hmm. I think that's the same idea with somebody like that does mm-hmm. art that doesn't really understand what they're doing or someone that has, doesn't have appreciation for it, where someone that has a really trained eye on it. Obviously you can look at it and be like, like, no, that, yep. that that's worth Mm-hmm. this because of these reasons and well you you say it right there so uh making the image everybody's creative everybody can do really amazing creative stuff because when you go choose to take a picture you're making a whole bunch of decisions uh, i'm going to frame it in this way so you're biasing the image i'm going to uh, i want to make it in black and white or color you're starting to make decisions about how you're going to communicate or what that means but take a step back it's what does it mean it has value so no matter how bad I think it is, it has value to you. So it means it's important. And I think that's something that artists really take to heart is that if it's important to me, 
and uh, and I make it really important to me. It's, it should be really important to someone else. Um, I think artists are given a, a they take the time to use some skills to make things communicate in a little bit better way. It's a little bit easier for people to digest. I take a lot of bad pictures and a lot of ugly pictures that other people don't like, but I like them. It has value to me, so mm -hmm. I do it. Everybody's artistic eye has value. Um, so it's subjective, and, obviously. Yeah, it's sub subjective. Mm -hmm. But I think um, if you're choosing to communicate something with that object, then that's where all the rest of that bias comes in. It's where all the rest of those uh, that cultural impact really starts to uh, play on us. That's one of the reasons, um, you know, you figure kids, you know, when they're 10, 12 years old, they realize what they're drawing is ugly and they stop drawing. They're like, well, it's not ugly. It's just it's not what you had in your mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where artists sort of have worked on what they know what they want and they learn a set of skills to be able to present that and produce it. And, uh, and you know, I think as a culture, we don't respect people who uh, don't we give them enough respect, I think, for the work that it takes to be able to do that. It takes time and effort yeah. and thought. Well, it take, it, it's, it's a learned skill, too. Yeah. It's not like you can just take someone off the street. I mean, they, there's probably some talent to yeah. anything, but it's the same thing. We might have a guest here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a certain talent that, um, you know, I think it has, and it goes a long way. And what could be anything? It yeah. could be, you know, once you become like, like you always hear like the 10,000 hour, 10,000 hour thing. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, photography, because it's so prevalent now, and there's billions of images are made every day. And uh, um, everybody thinks the ones they make have value, and they do legitimately to them. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're successful in other contexts. Mm -hmm. You take that image and you stick it on your website. Yeah, it might be, you know, a sellable object. It might not. But what it's done is it's really uh, changed the playing field for artists in particular, especially for professional photographers in that uh, jobs back in the 80s and 90s that you could have made a good living on just don't exist. They literally evaporated overnight. I used to I really love doing editorial and magazine spreads. Magazine covers were really uh, my yeah. piece de resistance, and uh, it's just gone. Mm -hmm. Just there's so few magazines; they don't exist. Print mm -hmm. magazines, yeah. and now everything's online, and, uh, and it can be done, you know, much easier, much cheaper. And so I do miss that kind of work a lot. I enjoyed the big productions with the assistants, and you know, hanging. I literally was I've hired, hang, hung out of helicopters shooting stuff, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, but just there are budgets like that don't exist anymore. Yeah. So very very rarely now, now everybody shoots it with drones. So. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, can you speak Italian? Any other See? language? Okay. So, just a little. Just a um, little. Now. So a couple and, and did you do any obviously photography or do you do anything with art or music? I say art being like painting or drawing or do you um, well or uh, any other medium than than or medium versus uh, photography or is it pretty much? I would say I, I I like to treat uh, everything creatively. Mm -hmm. uh, even in my job now, working in an office, I treat the things I do. I uh, try to come up with creative solutions. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was taught to me by, it's funny enough, uh, a guy from Quebec, uh, Mario Laplante. He was a printmaker at FSU. Uh, I don't think I mentioned that. I went to Florida State University, did I? You did. Tell oh, I did. You yeah. did you met, well, you said you went. You didn't yeah. really go into it. Yeah. Um, so Mario was a visiting professor. And one day, he and I got into this crazy kind of argument where he's like, Jesus, you know, it's so messy around here. He goes... Um, you know, how can you expect to be creative if your the life around you is as messy as your the work you've got on this table? And I was like, well, um, 
I like having all the tools at hand and I, my mind is messy like that. Mm -hmm. I bounce around, I make connections between things. That's, I think, part of the creative bent that I have as an artist. And he said, well, he goes, that's, that's great. But he says, you can apply your creative uh, tool to everything you do in life, but you don't necessarily have to make a mess of everything you do in your life. And I was like, that's a really interesting point. So he lived a very minimalist life, and his artwork was very minimalist, but it fit. But he, everything was a piece of art to him. It could have been the quality, the selection of color on his shoes or his pants or the pen he held in his hand. Every aspect of his life was thoughtful and creatively solved. So from that point forward, I started applying that to a lot of other things I did in life. So when uh, when you ask about are there other mediums, other artistic things you do, I think everything is an artistic medium. How I put the fried chicken on a plate for dinner might be an artistic state, or maybe not a statement to uh, in the ages. Subconsciously, you're... But I'm trying to make of, it look good. Yeah. Um, and some things look better, much better than others. Um, I've built furniture. Uh, I love to build things, uh, you know, tables. I've built welding benches that I would spend all weekend trying to get the welds just right so it would look as beautiful as it was functional. Mm -hmm. um, Photography is the only thing that reflects back, uh, I think, at a skill set that I'm proud of. Everything else is pretty much second tier. And I, it just comes from spending years immersed in it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, like I refinished the floors of my house. And, you know, it's a half-assed job looking at it uh, objectively. But I did it. Yeah. I'm proud of that fact. Yeah. And uh, I think um, part of the other sort of creative aspect is I love to do things with my hands and it's something I God, my father inspired a lot of interesting and wonderful things in my character and one of them is the idea of tearing stuff apart and putting it back together so uh, you know whether it's uh, uh, recently I've been on a building my own lenses for photography kicks so I would buy you know parts of lenses from Russia God eBay is amazing the internet is incredible <laughs> so I can buy a projection lens from like the Ukraine bring it home take it apart, put it back together and take pictures through it. And suddenly I'm making these amazing new images that I've never been able to see before. So, you know, I'm taking that creative aspect and pushing it in other mediums. And it's not necessarily painting or drawing. It might be um, the construction of the lens or uh, at my office and my work, it might be in how I solve a problem. Like how do I, uh, how do I get someone help? How do I identify someone in a crowd that needs help and uh, they don't know where to get help? So, yeah, so it's like I try and apply it to lots of different parts of my life. My, my wife makes a lot of fun of me and I, it's sort of wonderful in that she's like, no, you know, uh, the dinner we're having tonight does not need to be an artistic, uh, you know, uh, work of art. We just need the fried chicken we want to eat. So sometimes I have to be put back in my place. So, um, so, so Speaking of uh, Gina, yeah. So both our wives are Gina. Different, <laughs> different spellings, but but uh, we love we love Gina's dearly. Yeah. Um, so she now she obviously went to Italy, and you guys met there, right? So that yeah. was just it wasn't like you knew each other prior to going nope. or anything. Nope. So uh, yeah, kind of like what's her background, and especially like her with obviously she was an artist. Yeah, right? yeah. Because she still is, but I mean she must have been to go on that trip. Yeah. So. Uh, well, the, I taught at a university there, so a couple different ones. So if you went to school there, you were in a four-year program studying art, art history, conservation, or something along those lines. 
Um, I had been teaching in Italy maybe a couple of years. Uh, we had just moved into a new space and uh, uh, Gina was one of my students. And then she went back to the States. This would have been in, uh, I guess, around 2000 or so. And then she came back and was an assistant in my department. And then uh, uh, a number of years later, when I moved back to the States, we bumped into each other when I was moving to Burlington, Vermont. And that's how we hooked up. So we knew each other. Wait. But we didn't date until we got back to the States. Was she already living up here? She was living in Baltimore, and so I stopped on the way, on my way to uh, Burlington to spend oh. the night And uh, when I was moving up. Gotcha. So. Okay, so you were still in contact with her at yeah. that point? Yeah, in passing. Like you, yeah. Okay, so I mean, like, you knew where she lived at the time. It wasn't like yeah. it wasn't like you, ran, you literally ran into her on the street and like, yeah. bumped no, into her. No, no, no. Okay. So, so yeah, so she, um, we met. She came over as a student, and she had was going to art school at the, uh, what is it, at MICA, the Maryland Institute College of Art, one of the best art schools in the world. And uh, she... Uh, uh, she's an amazing, uh, doing, uh, fabrics and textiles and uh, painting and drawing. I mean, everything she touches is just spectacular when it comes to a creative solution and it's beautiful and fun and wonderful to look at. Um, so she, uh, we bumped into each other, uh, sort of, I stopped in, we said hello in Baltimore and then, uh, uh, she drove up to Burlington and visited, and then I went back to Baltimore and visited, and then we're like, shit, this long distance is for the birds. And I said, you gotta move to Burlington, and she did. And so we've been together ever since. And so we got married in 2010, and then uh, Eli was born in 2012, so. Now, what, what is she, because she does graphic designing now. Yeah. And did, did she ever do photography, painting? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was one of my photo students. So, so she, she obviously has a very good eye for that. Uh, amazing eye. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, I, I don't say this lightly. She, she's a much better photographer than an artist than I am on by any medium. From the um, creative aspect? Yeah, from absolutely. Her vision is uh, really spectacular. It's thought through at all these different levels, uh, whether it's uh, what are you trying to communicate, who's your audience, uh, what are the uh, uh, specific angles of uh, that you're trying to get across in that communication? What's your narrative? Um, she's really good at piecing that all together to make a full statement to fit into the big picture that makes a story that fits the culture. That's what PR really and uh, marketing yeah, is about. 100%. And uh, she's great at that. Um, whereas I'm very technical, it's like I know photography really well, and I can step in and make a solution that's very adequate very quickly. Hers is much more thoughtful and much more thought through. And uh, so, does she still do uh, photography now, like on the side, or is she do? I mean, what, like, what is, or is she 100% more just? Her total focus right now has been on uh, you know, sort of raising the family and doing PR and graphic design work. Excuse me for Clinton County, and then for other side jobs. Okay. And work like the work she does for Core 360. She mm-hmm. does all the design work for the website and uh, their PR marketing campaigns, things of that nature. So obviously, she's taken a much bigger creative. She's taken the creativeness of the photography into the yeah. digital aspect. Yeah. Well, she it, she applied an artistic background to that, mm-hmm. and photography was just a small portion of it. So you figure um, when you start to uh, when you're taught to draw or to paint um, you really sort of rearrange how your mind works 
um, in how you're applying things like uh, texture and color and palettes. Um, and then you take that tool set and then you apply it to other mediums. So a website is just another medium, it has color and uh, composition and design. And design. Yeah, the design aspects or shapes of Shapes or objects. Exactly. And then you've got the idea of what are you trying to communicate? Who's mm -hmm. your audience? Is your audience a 20 something? Uh, you know, a uh, person or a 40 something person or an 80 something person. So, um, so I think her artistic skills really have come from uh, sort of uh, uh, this deep, vast background of learning she's got. Um, she has some amazing things at our house, like uh, textile work that she did in school where she sort of spun and made these amazing like wool blankets and uh, they're not wool it's uh, i forget some crazy like, like llama hair like or something. cashmere or Ca i don't know if it's cashmere or goat hair or something yeah, it's crazy yeah it's probably nothing i've heard but of she like um she made the uh tents and and uh she made all the 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 dyes for it and it's amazing light and beautiful so it's like everything she touches is pretty our house is like that thank god she's there because it would be i'd be living in a, a garage yeah. yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah. now you always need a woman's touch absolutely. at some point with, absolutely at least with decor um yeah so you talked i don't know you'd mentioned this before but then you'd also said you've hung out of a helicopter too so i don't know yeah. you said airplane jumping out of airplanes <laughs> but then you said you also hung out of, of a helicopter taking yeah. photos so I, I've always, I I've always, are, I don't know yeah. if those are tied in. They're not but. connected, but they are. So <laughs> I've always been kind of an adrenaline junkie. I love to, uh, I love to go fast. I love to do things that are exciting. So martial arts is one of those things. So for my whole life, you know, I get on the mat. I learn to do stuff. I learn to to fight and to. I learned to, I, I love the idea of the regimentation of it. I love the idea of the conflict and conflict resolution. Um, uh, and I, I like to apply it to a lot of different things in life. Um, when uh, I had a great time in college, um, the first car I ever owned was a 1973 240Z that my dad picked up off the Air Force Base in Montgomery. And he and I spent a uh, summer sort of re-putting it back together. And uh, that car was very fast and it was a lot of fun to drive. So, uh, and I've always liked to go fast. So um, martial arts was a way to go fast um, and then driving to go fast. Um, and then when I, um, uh, you know, when I got out of school, I was looking for more adrenaline pursuits. So I did a lot of mountain climbing mm -hmm. and uh, I would go to the local climbing gym in Florence, Italy and climb. And then I got met up with this killer instructor, sculptor uh, named uh, Matty Alvnen. Um, and he and I became climbing partners. And so we would travel to Southern Italy or to Southern France into Verdun and climb in the canyons together. Um, we would go to the uh, quarries in Tuscany and climb together. And being up high is exhilarating. And being up high on your own, by your own control was amazing. And then, uh, uh, so that's sort of, uh, up to a point in Italy. Before that, um, when I had my commercial studio, every now and then people would hire me to do stuff, like uh, the prison wanted pictures from the air, so they would hire me to jump in an airplane and take pictures of the prison, or jump in a helicopter, and I would. So basically the pre-drone. Yeah, pre-drone, yeah. exactly. And I loved it, because uh, I loved the idea of the freedom of flying through the air. Um, and in fact, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a pilot, and uh, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. And when I found out I needed glasses, it was soul-crushing that I couldn't do mm -hmm. that. And that was before surgery for eyes, where it could get fixed. Um, so that, um, uh, so the idea of being in the air, free-floating, always stuck with me that I really loved. When you mountain climb, you're 
free floating when you're falling, but you don't want to fall. So there's this magic balance there. And uh, I found the technical aspect of climbing much like martial arts. You're finding a solution, but you don't exactly know how you're going to get there. So you have to be creative and you have limitations on your body. So when you say climbing mountains, this isn't like hiking up no. the Adirondack peaks. You know, this is... Is that like, like scaling mountains, like physically rock climbing? Yeah, or is climbing, it, climbing. Yeah. yeah. So I should probably clarify. Yeah, I was going to say like rappelling so, down after and climbing up. And, exactly, okay. exactly. So free climbing, uh, setting routes. Uh, I wouldn't set routes, but we did everything. Uh, the nice thing about climbing in Europe is almost all the routes are bolted for you. Mm-hmm. So all you need is a rope and a partner. And you can climb up. So then you can basically uh, just latch on, climb, latch exactly, on. Exactly, exactly. And so we did a lot of that. And I loved it because it was physically demanding. It was... Uh, How about ten- your hands? Oh, you learn to develop them. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and it, you get over time. This they hurt. You know, mm-hmm. you learn and just the joints, like the pressure. The pressure. You must be good at moving furniture now, right? <laughs> you get her in that last joint. Like, oh. Yeah. Well, it's amazing what grip strength will do yeah, for you. You know. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, I had a roommate uh, when I lived there who was a climber, and uh, Stephen, he was amazing. So we would, built our own uh, fingerboards that would go above the door frames, so we could practice in the in the apartment. But um. The, I'm getting to the jumping out of airplanes. No, so, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm climbing mountains. I'm having a great time. And so one of my, uh, one of the other teachers there, instructors, had this boyfriend named Andrea. Andrea Sorani. I'll never forget it. So we start drinking one night at this party. And he's talking about parak uh, dutismo. Uh, and I'm like, what? And he's like, you know, jumping out of airplanes. And he says, tried and true Tuscan Italian. And I'm like, what do you mean? So he grabs me and he goes, come watch this video. And he puts in this videotape and it's of him doing these movements in the air. And I'm like, dude, you jumped out of an airplane and you did all that? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, "Ah, that'd be fun. I'd like to try that. Now I'd had a few drinks in me. I thought never in a million years uh, would this ever, would I ever jump out of an airplane? Uh, I'll be, I thought it'd be fun. And so that night he goes, you're going to come with me. And I'm like, all right. And I'm like, no, it'll never happen. So uh, two weeks go by. So I'd gone out with my friends one night. So one Sunday morning, I get this phone call. Scott, Scott, we're going to go jump out of an airplane. And I'm like, right now? And he's like, yeah, I'm downstairs. So I was like, holy shit. So I grab my clothes. I get dressed. I go downstairs. I'm hung over like I couldn't even see straight. So I get in the car and we're in Florence. And he was skydiving out of a place about 40 miles south of town near. Uh, uh, I don't remember what the name of that town was. It's been a long time now. And uh, so we get in the car and we're driving like hell there. And we get there. And it's just one big, long blur of introducing me to all these Italian guys. And I'm like getting baptized into this community that I have no idea what's happening. So they're like, you need a video. You need this. Here, get dressed. And then there's this moment of clarity when they open the door in this airplane. And it's 13,000 feet down. And they're like, are you ready to jump? And I was like, holy shit, I'm going to die right here. And this is it. And I don't know what's going to happen. We jumped was out. Was this a tandem dive? Yeah, this was okay. a tandem. We jumped out. And it was just one long scream. And then we hit the ground. And I was just like, I was getting high fives and hugs. And then I'm like, let's go again. And so for weeks after that, every clear day, I would go down. And uh, I was working on getting my... Uh, advanced free fly certificate die uh skydiving now at the time i was teaching i didn't have a lot of money so what i was doing to afford it i've always been an entrepreneur i would put up flyers around the school and i would say 
anybody who wants to go skydiving in Italy, come see me. And I would take a group of students down to the skydiving place. And for every X number of students who would do a tandem, I would get a free jump. So I was getting my advanced free fly certificate for free by getting the students to go. And the Italians loved the Americans to go down. And so it was like, it was this amazing experience. And so Andrea and I would spend uh, as much time as we could down at the airport jumping out of airplanes. And uh, I, I, it really reset the scale. You don't, you don't understand real fear, I don't think, till the first time you jump out of an airplane on your own, by yourself, and you got to hit the ground. So you've done solo jumps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, How many jumps? packed my own chute, the whole thing. A couple... Uh, probably I don't know, three dozen, maybe four dozen, something like that. And I ran out of time. I moved back to America and uh, stopped right after that. So, how, how long does it take? Thirteen thousand feet. A minute, minute and a half. That's all. Not it is. long. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you, it's long. I, well, <laughs> it feels long. Yeah, I don't. I, I couldn't even imagine. Like, so, at what point is the free fall done, and you pull the chute? So it, it depends. So the first couple jumps I did after the tandem, I did uh, the. Uh, what is it called? Uh, the Italians call it funa di vincolo, a static line. So they, uh, you hook a hook into the plane. When you jump out, it pulls the chute open for you. And you do it at a very low altitude. And what it's doing is it's training you to be able to leave the airplane correctly, to be in the right form. And then it's also teaching you how to land, how to control the parachute. Then what they do is they ratchet it up. You go higher and higher and higher. And that time to get to the ground gets longer, longer, longer. And then you get to this point where, all right, now you've got your own chute and you jump out with someone and you free fall together and you pull your chute and they're there to help you. And there is a learning curve because you have to learn to keep your body stability in the right form so that you don't tumble. You don't want to get caught up in the chute. It's, uh, it's amazing the number of things that can go wrong. And this is a place where you don't want things to go wrong. Yeah. I mean, the... Uh, the risks are quite high. Um, I found it to be very safe. I found the group that I was jumping with to be um, uh, amazing to learn from. The uh, When I was taking the tests um, to learn, there was an old guy there that was essentially my instructor. And uh, he was he was maybe in his late 60s, early 70s, and had maybe, I don't know, five or 6,000 jumps under his belt. He was, a, he was an incredible skydiver. But he had made bad decisions. He had a huge hitch in his limp, uh, in his gait because he had made the decision to turn a parachute too close to the ground and fell dropped and essentially crushed a leg he made made a mistake and learned from it and so he took it to heart that he didn't want the people he trained to make those same kinds of mistakes and mm -hmm. so i really appreciated that um uh, plus it was really fun for me because it was helping me uh, improve my language skills learning to do something in another language totally scary when they're yelling at you in Italian and mm -hmm. all you can think of is oh shit oh shit I'm gonna die yeah. and <laughs> yeah. so uh, you, pick yeah. up, you pick up real quick you pick up fast exactly did, exactly. Uh, did you ever watch the guy remember the guy that's probably six seven years ago now when he jumped out of the uh, the plane from space oh yeah I watched that live when they did it mm -hmm. like, me too the uh, Baumgartner yeah. yeah, when he kept going up, and it was freaky because like he watched it, and he just kept like going up, and I remember yeah. he was just like he was just sitting in his own little capsule. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I just remember like I think it ended up being on like a commercial later on, but like when he opened the door and mm -hmm. he was just sitting at the edge, and all we just saw him was just him just jump down. I'm like, yeah. oh, I don't know. I mean, obviously the guy was very trained, but it was yeah. like 
it's just so crazy from that aspect because then you're going through layers of the atmosphere. atmosphere. Yeah. So he was up at over 100,000 feet. That's a totally different world. I and mean, he broke the sound barrier. He was falling, but the air is so thin up there. Um, and that's, wow. it, you don't. Because he was tumbling. Yeah, yeah, quite a, while. a long time. There's no air resistance. Mm-hmm. So he's just whatever, however he left. And until he got to the heavier air, could he stabilize the system and pull so the parachute? He would know that once he jumped, he was going to probably experience that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, you get that. Like, you even know the air is thinner at 13,000 feet. You feel it. You open the door, and it's like, it's a different world. It's cold. It's like, you know, four degrees. It's really cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you jump out, and then you're down on the ground a minute and a half later. But uh, so, so when he jumped down... What I'm looking at too is like, you're essentially 100,000 feet. You're in space. Yeah, you're on the border of space. So like, when you jump down, and you're literally jumping onto, <laughs> which is crazy because you're looking at it and you're yeah. like, oh, there. I don't know where he actually landed <clears throat> yeah. in, the, in, the, in the world, but you're like, oh, there's U.S. There's Africa. <laughs> like you can pick it out like you're looking at a global map. Yeah. And just the fact that you're jumping down, like I honestly, if I just kind of turned a couple inches, I could, or you know, an angle here yeah. or there, I could land in Australia. You know, and like. I, I, obviously, it's probably not that simple, but yep. it just so seemed that horizontal way. flight is is possible. I mean, obviously, with the wingsuits and stuff now, you can make huge distances. But mm-hmm. in his case, I think for safety reasons, you want to jump out uh, just, right over where you float up, so that people can find you. And uh, so when he when he jumped, he literally just jumped. He almost just like dropped fell down straight down. So he, yeah. even if now, what would have happened if he would have jumped as far as he could out? Which is you're probably talking maybe a couple feet. But he still would have fallen straight down until he got, I think, to enough air that's heavy enough for wind resistance. Would he be able to move sideways? Because so he could have. I mean, he, in theory, he could have went hundreds of miles another direction. Maybe not hundreds of miles. I don't know. I, I don't know the physics of it. But yeah. he certainly could have made uh, distance. Had he had a wingsuit, then he absolutely. I mean, people have like, crossed the, the English Channel 30, yeah, whatever, yeah. 30 miles, 40 miles horizontally, depending on uh, how much wind resistance. Have you seen those guys do that? Oh, yeah. That's have, a you ever, have you ever seen anybody do it live? or? Uh, I've seen some base jumpers in Switzerland. Uh, I saw one base jumper, I think, in uh, Virginia off of the, uh, what is that bridge? There's a bridge in southern Virginia. A lot of base, they close it every year for base jumpers to jump off so, of. So when they're going down and they have that suit on, mm-hmm. which has wings basically yeah. between the arms and the feet? Yeah, like so the between thing. the legs, yeah, arms between and legs, body. When they, they jump, they obviously can manipulate it based yeah. off like the body. Because I would assume... You're obviously cutting through the air at a very sharp rate, yep. and then you're slicing, basically slicing through air. And as yep. soon as you, I would think, probably pull back, you're, mm-hmm. you're probably at that point, you know, like anything, you're like, you know, it's like when you're going out and put your hand out the car door, yep. or out the window, and you go like this, you put your hand up, all of a sudden you yep. feel the resistance. Yep. So I'm assuming they, they can slow up like that, yep. and they just kind of glide yep. in. Well, some of them, like, uh, I forget, there's a guy that does the stuff for... Um, uh, what is it? Red Bull. He has a fiberglass wing with jet engines on it, so that he can he jumps out of the airplane and goes for really long distances before he pulls his parachute. But it's the it's the same thing. It's using wind resistance to uh, change your vector so that you're moving uh, horizo- horizontally as far as you can. Yeah, that, there's a there's actually a guy that's in CrossFit. You know Andy Stumpf? Have you heard of him? Oh yeah, yeah. Because he was a big he was one of the original CrossFit guys back yeah. in the day. He was an instructor and I think a Navy yeah. SEAL, and I think he's. I don't want to say broke record. I don't know. Yeah. He's done something, yeah. obviously, at a very high level of of, uh, yeah. of um, whatever that's called. What, yeah, base jumping. Is that what it's called? Base jumping? Yeah. So yeah. it's it's very, very I always call it dangerous. Like suit. I don't know exactly <laughs> what, it is, what it is, but... Well, the, it, the margin of error there is so small. Even, like, base jumping uh, is appealing to me just from the adrenaline rush, but the risk is so high. 
now with a family, it's like, no way would I want to do that. So but, base jump meaning like jumping from the top of a cliff type yeah, deal. Yeah. But what, what would, are you, would you still be wearing that type of, that type of suit? Yeah, you could be. Because you want to have a parachute. Well, you would have a pair. You have to have a parachute. You can't land with a squirrel suit. So, oh, they, have, they, those guys still have parachutes on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're I always going, thought they didn't. I always no, thought, you're going oh. a 90, 120 miles an hour. So, well, I always thought they, they literally just manipulated by turning. Yeah. Like, it, no, you got to. You still so have, do to have, have a parachute. Shoot. Okay, yeah. okay. I, and I that's that. and that's the problem. I think is why a lot of them are dying. Is that you um, you have a uh, you make a lot of airplane jumps, and you get really good at it. And mm-hmm. so you have a level of comfort. And then you start thinking, well, I want to do some base jumping to increase the adrenaline. So I start jumping off buildings. I start jumping off cliffs, jumping off antennas. Yeah, that's what base means, you know, building antenna span. Um, and then uh, you add the squirrel suit and you're like, okay, now I can take it to the next level. I can shoot across the ground. I can shoot through mountain passes. And uh, the risk level, uh, you know, if you clip anything you're dead right then you're dead Mm -hmm. because there's you're not going to survive um or if you do you're going to be you know mangled like you know quadriplegic so um i think uh, it's one of those things where you just keep upping the ante and upping the ante and at some point you either stop upping the ante or you get hurt or you retire and there are not a lot of old guys doing it for a reason yeah well i think i think when you're at that level too retiring or not upping the ante is a tough thing to do both of them Absolutely. I think you're just at that point where it's just like push, 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 yep. push. I think you just push to death, basically, yep. Yep. for a lot of those guys, but it's nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. It is nuts. And I think it might be uh, sort of indicative of, indicative of some of the problems we have as, as men and in our culture with like wanting to push things to the mm-hmm. absolute limit. And I think there's a place for it, but also I think that there's a it's dangerous. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Imagine that being the model for your kids, you know. You want to teach them risk analysis assessment to make good decisions. Yeah. And when daddy's jumping off cliffs in a squirrel suit, not a good model. Yeah. So. I mean, I, I want to do it. I want to do it without kid, let alone yeah. with kid. I guess it's not yeah. me. I'm, I'm not. I'm a. I like to push the things I like yeah. that I'm good at or I want to get better at yeah. type deal. Like, but I don't. I, my, my, my usually rule of thumb is if the the. Worst case scenario is death. I usually don't yeah. don't do it, which is that, that's always what like like jumping out of an airplane for me. Yeah. I know a bunch of people have done it, and like yeah. there's people that have seen do it. That I'm like, you jumped out of an airplane? Like, oh yeah, it was amazing. And I'm like, yeah. I don't yeah. know. I, I honestly don't know if I could do it. I got my wife to do it. So in that's Italy, crazy. yeah. It's, so it's like it's one of these things that uh, you know if you the tandems, it's pretty safe. From an airplane, you got backup systems in place. You've yeah. got experienced instructors. It's very different than jumping off on a cliff. It's yeah. just a, it's a different world. I don't know. Maybe I mean I looked at a, what's it? Um, H. Bush jumped out of planes mm-hmm. until he was like ninety. You know. Yeah. So I mean, obviously you yeah. can go like at a very uh, yeah. later stage of life, but it just. Maybe I'll do it. Who knows? I recommend it's, it for it, everyone. I think yeah. uh, for one respect <laughs> is that... Because jumping advocate. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, um, it resets to scale. Like, I love going to roller coasters and rides. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like I said, you know, um, uh, I like to go fast. Um, but when you jump out of an airplane, you're going really fast. Yeah. And uh, it's the experience is really... It's uh, at both... It's... Um, Physical and existential. You're like coming to terms with the grip that I'm falling, which mm-hmm. from the day you're born, most people are wired that you don't want to fall, mm-hmm. and it's painful. And so you even wake up when you fall. Yeah. Think like think about pretending like you. I think they said if you put a pen in your hand, mm-hmm. you wake up if you drop it. Yeah. Like you can't not you can't just sleep and drop a pen. Like it would physically wake you up. Yeah. So sense. it's in yeah. that it's wired deep, mm-hmm. and you're totally resetting it's, that. It's probably I mean, a survival mechanism yeah, from I'm sure. years. 
years, I'm sure. thousands of years. You figure for tens of thousands of years, we've evolved it out. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do it because all the people who did are dead. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I, in that fa- in that respect, it's um, it's a ride. It's totally worth. And I, I can't even. I talk about it now, and I can't help but smile because yeah. it was so much fun. Well, d- does it ever change? Jump one to jump thirty-five. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, do you get more comfortable? Obviously, I'm assuming there's a, there's yeah. kind of like a learning curve where. It, yeah. Maybe. Well, the first time you pack your own shoot and jump, you're like, oh, shit, I hope I did it right. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's different yeah. levels of fear. Um, and also the idea of um, I think of it existential if you're facing stuff. It's like, you know, uh, you make a mistake at work. I'm going to go face that at work. Uh, should I be afraid of it? No. Is it any different than jumping out of an airplane? No. It's just mm-hmm. another aspect of life. And you want to apply everything in life to sort of those little skills that you learn along the way. Um, the uh, the part that I think it becomes more beautiful is you start to change the parameters around when you're jumping, like jumping at sunset is amazing where you jump through the beams of sun as they skim across the clouds. So you're in sunlight and then suddenly you're not in sunlight. Um, jumping out at noon on a partly cloudy day and you fall into a puff of a cloud and you see your, the shape of your body with multiple rings of uh, rainbows because of being backlit it's incredible it's like these all these beautiful moments that are seared in my memory because of the amount of adrenaline just being being dumped in my body clear at that point absolutely mind kind of thing yeah and uh and plus the camaraderie we come back again to community like we were talking about uh, before the podcast with crossfit the community of skydivers is incredible it's very much like crossfit and uh, very much like church where everybody has reverence for what you're doing mm-hmm. there's this uh infinite amount of respect for the people who have uh a lot of uh, experience doing it and it's tech you have to be technically proficient so you have to learn there's a learning curve so you have to be mentored to some degree to really get good at it and uh and i loved that uh, atmosphere and I'm, I'm assuming like anything that's that someone gets become a well-versed or, or an expert in the field mm-hmm. there's obviously like once they get a trained eye is there certain techniques to jumping where you're just like yeah. that guy's heading better than anybody oh, I know yeah. it seems like crazy because you're following you pull the yeah. shoot but like there's obviously there's whole sports wrapped around it like uh, you know being able to do movements in in the sky aerial. some people yeah aerial movements people strap uh, excuse me um uh, snowboards and we'll do movements. There's acrobatics. Um, there's the team, the pilot for the place where I used to jump out of. He was part of, uh, at the time, the world's largest uh, number of people jump in Thailand. And uh, they had this big poster there that he was a part of. Like tandem jumping. Oh, tandem. Yeah, tandem with 150 people. Like is that when you see, like, is that the 12 one? airplanes going at the same time and everybody jumps out and they link together, link together, link together. And then you've got like- It's like that teamwork poster you always yeah. see that. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's it. So he was, he did that kind of stuff. So different. there's different levels of uh, technique and uh, being, uh, you know, and probably based on altitude too. Well, well, that's just time. Yeah. So, so there's not much of a difference. I mean, obviously the space guy, but like yeah. everybody else, you're probably what around the ten to fifteen thousand. Well, it depends. So the highest I ever jumped was about thirteen thousand feet, give or take, and that's about the highest for general skydiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you get above that, uh, oxygen gets really thin, so you start to get into the uh, lightheaded. Light, well, you start to use uh, supplemental oxygen. You'll do halo jumps where you jump at uh, thirty or forty thousand feet and you get supplemental oxygen. So you have a much longer ride. Uh, it's a much different uh, jump. It's like and, going down the ski slope. Yeah, yeah going, you know, exactly. Go to the top of the peak and uh, just. Yep. But think about it. The difference between 13,000 and 30,000 feet is twice as much time. So it's a lot of time in the air. 
So you want to go faster at the higher altitude because of less? Well, you max out in your speed pretty quick. So you're only going 150, 120 miles an hour, but you're at 120 miles an hour for 120 seconds instead of 60 seconds or however long your flight is. And yeah. then you can also choose when to open your... Uh, your um, parachute. So when I would look at my altimeter, you know, as the needle starts to get down to the red zone, you pull the chute. And if you have a problem, you want to pull earlier so you got more time to fix it. But that also means you got more time to float around and look at the environment. So there's so sometimes you'd pull it relatively quick because you'd want to make the ride last a little bit yeah. longer. Yeah, and sit up there and look because where I jumped, um, you could uh, you could see all just about both sides of Italy at the same time right in the middle wow. so you would see a lake bolsena you would see the mountains and what's uh, the, the what's, city what's the width of, of i don't know offhand but we, at thirteen thousand feet you're up pretty high you can see That's you can crazy. see a lot a long ways especially on clear days yeah and, uh, and it was just such a beautiful place to jump with the mountains and rivers and so, so. When, when you pull a shoot what was the relative speed that you're traveling uh you go from like say 120 down to Oh, you slows down. Half of that? Uh, yeah, well, much more than half of that. I probably I don't know precisely, but um, you know, it's enough so that depending on how you control your parachute, because when you pull the parachute, you can um, you can pull on the controls and turn it right mm -hmm. or left, and you can pull both of the controls, and it slows your descent down to the point where you could just essentially start walking right on the ground, and you don't even you don't fall. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't, and depending on the, your relative weight and mass and the relative size of your parachute, parachutes come in big and small sizes. So you have a much bigger parachute, much slower ride, mm -hmm. much softer landing, or a much smaller one to go much faster, to turn, make much sharper turns, but a higher risk of uh, turning and augering right into the ground. Um, so there's a lot of decisions to be made yeah. and a lot of factors that change uh, how it fits. And uh, I essentially just, uh, whatever the default was that people said, this is the size you need, I trusted them. Yeah, so. kind of the middle range. Yeah. Um, so, again, I got, I got a couple topics here that I want oh, to hit right on, but we, but we uh, <clears throat> so I guess um, we kind of talked about martial art. You said you got martial arts when you what, what, what form of martial arts? It depends. So I first started out in uh, Tongsudo and uh, sort of Korean style of karate in uh, high school. And I did a lot of competitions all over the Southeast in really large uh, sort of, you know, uh, you know, in, in all over Alabama and Atlanta, Georgia and Florida. And then uh, in uh, college, I started uh, studying Aikido and uh, Weichiru Karate. And I loved that. That's a killer mix of uh, hard striking and then uh, also with Aikido, which has a, Aikido is kind of an interesting martial art in that you end up, you spend a lot of time learning to fall and then learning to throw people. So there's a few joint locks, but most of the concept of it is redirecting someone else's uh, direction of travel and vector of their energy to um, sort of, uh, 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 De, how can I put this? Depower the technique. So if someone's throwing a punch, you're going to redirect the uh, velocity and energy of the punch back on them to put them at a uh, disadvantage so that you can take advantage of the situation. Uh, Aikido is really interesting in that um, you spend a lot less time learning to strike and kick and a lot more time to redirect other people. And it's a fantastic lesson that you can apply to life. How do you take conflict in everyday experience and redirect it to make it something uh, beneficial or something positive? It's a, a really uh, lovely conflict resolution. Um, uh, 
the idea of practicing attacks and being uh, attacking and being attacked by multiple attackers was wonderful. You know, uh, you know, so being on the mat and having four or five people trying to kick you or punch you at the same time, you got to learn to move and mm-hmm. you got to learn to peripherally know where things are just like in real life. And so I took a lot, I spent I don't know, 10 years doing it and uh, I loved it. And one of the best practitioners in the world is right here in Burlington. So it was very easy to get great instruction. So when, when you, so like a karate tournament or karate, right? T- tournament. Say yeah. yeah. Um, so I, my, my idea of anything is like, I, I like watching like MMA. Yeah. So, but I don't know, there's obviously forms of karate within that. Like jujitsu yep. is a form of karate. Oh yeah, but like when you talk about, you know, actual karate. I mean, are you talking about like kicking and punching people? Like, mm-hmm. So when you had karate tournaments, you're actually getting hit by. People. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you, I mean, could you hit the face or no? Uh-huh. Is that kind of a? Yeah. So it depended on the kind of tournament. There were different tournaments. Um, I did most of that in like high school, but uh, uh, you know, it depended on the organization that it was in. Was it uh, if it was sanctioned by like, uh, uh, oh, what is it? Um, Shit, I can't think. It's got. It's been 20, 30 years. But there were organizations that would have different kinds of tournaments depending on your belt level and your skill set and your age and your size. They would try and pair you up with groups that were of similar size, similar weight, similar skill sets. And in some cases, you would have gear, hand pads, knee pads, or excuse me, shin pads, feet pads, and headgear. Uh, in most of the groups we didn't, I fought in, we didn't have headgear, but we had. Uh, pads for hands and feet um but that's not to say we got hit we got rattled um Mm -hmm. and uh if you get to other styles like weichiru where when you're in tournaments you know they don't even count points till they see redness on the skin so you're making full-on contact so in those cases it's much more mma styled um i had a killer instructor in tallahassee for that um then uh, MMA and jiu-jitsu changed all of that. And so that's been fascinating to watch. And it really makes me want to go study jiu-jitsu. I just don't have the time. And uh, But uh, the little that I've done rolling around, it's just I've loved how it works and how the um, – it's like uh, Aikido, but uh, on the ground. It's like a, this wonderful mixture of uh, the respect and the culture of martial arts with the rolling around and the strength and the logic of wrestling and then the overall idea of problem solving you would get in, uh, in any other aspect of life. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I'm really, uh, I like the way Jocko Willink uh, has a lot of his leadership lessons mm-hmm. are centered around this idea of problem solving is very similar to that. Uh, the little, the few times I've been exposed to it. And, uh, but, uh, I think martial arts has a lot to teach people. Uh, and I think, uh, I think all kids should get a dose of it. And if you like it, great, stick with it. If not, uh, I don't think it, it does any harm to mm-hmm. you, but I think it's a wonderful, uh, set of tools to put in your toolbox for life. I think it's like a gymnastics. Yeah. I mean, now, now going into more of CrossFit space, realizing yeah. that I think the best background <clears throat> you can have is a background in, in body movement and, yes. and movement through space versus, yes. you know, I mean, I, was, I, I played sports, but I was yeah. never, I had none of that. Like yeah. Core extremities and really understanding the, the how the body re- reacts, where I think something like martial arts, you, yeah. that is just 
common knowledge. Like yeah. you just understand what your body's doing and yeah, well, coordinated. And for the most part, it takes years to develop yeah. kinesthetics. I mean, yeah, knowing exactly. where your body is in space at any one time. Um, but it's funny, even we I've noticed over the years and I had this, um, one of my best friend in the world and who's, he's an amazing martial artist out in California. We talk about it all the time. The things the internet and the uh, leveling of knowledge across the world, particularly in martial arts, has been a real watershed moment in the past 20 years because things that people would study martial arts, they would travel to countries and say, I'm gonna study with this master to learn everything I can learn. Well, it turns out that a lot of that was horseshit and uh, a lot of what they were teaching you was just not good body mechanics. It was stuff that had been learned and passed down, but it hadn't been tested. Also, it was a lot of, uh, uh, I can't tell you how many, uh, you know, neuromuscular patterns that were ingrained in me that I, I thought were, now that I look back, I'm like, that was terrible for my body. That is not the right way to stretch. That was a terrible warm up, And I would never have had that knowledge if it hadn't been for, you know, the internet in this current digital age. And I think, um, and I think that's been eye-opening the older I get. But I think we're right now in this amazing time where we have access to it. So now if you want to learn to have a flexible body and be strong, you can go and get that information very readily, very easily, very cheaply. Uh, CrossFit is another perfect example. That marriage of uh, resistance training and weightlifting with gymnastic skills. So it's like you got technical pieces of Olympic lifting, technical pieces of the gymnastics, and you have to learn where your body is in space and time where it doesn't work. Um, and it very much is like martial arts. And I think that's why I took to it like a fish to water. It was because it was able to uh, answer some of the things I wanted physically in life at that time. How'd you get into CrossFit? Uh, well, I can, I can curse Paul D. Dominicus right off the bat for that one. He and his wife, Willow. Uh, that's another podcast is getting Willow in here. Um, they, funny thing is, so in 2012, uh, just before the birth of my son, I was uh, uh, really training hard in Aikido. And I knew Eli was coming. And I had started training with this guy who now is my boss. He's the CEO of the company. I was on the mat one day, and this huge guy, 6'2", burly, he sits down next to me, and I'm like, who the hell is this big guy? And we start training, and we start throwing each other hard, and we're loving it, and we're laughing and giggling. And, and, um, and so Gary, Gary Margolis, is like, you know, he's like, hey, this is, you know, this is a lot of fun. I like training with you, and I'm like, I like this. And I, I opened my mouth, and I said, you know, I've been looking for a new challenge with the, uh, my son coming. I'm coming back to CrossFit. Don't worry. It's a good no, story. Go. He, um, and he goes, why don't you come run a Spartan race with me and my friends? And I'm like, I'd love to. So uh, May of was it 2012, I start running for the first time in 30 years. So first at the Dome in Peru, it's like, all right, today I'm going to run 100 yards. And it's, it hurt. You know, it's rough. Next day, it's 150. Next day, 200. So I start training for the Spartan race. And... Uh, and along the way, I'm starting to run longer and longer distances. And my wife is like, I got this guy at work, Paul. He likes to run. You need to run with him. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let me run. So sure enough, I don't know, a couple months later, I meet Paul at the Oval here in town. And we start running. And we, it was as if we had known each other for multiple lifetimes. We start chatting about crazy eastern philosophy we start chatting about uh grunge music we start talking about heavy metal 
everything. And we start, we essentially become training partners just by default. Mm -hmm. So we start running together. And uh, I think he laughs because uh, the first time we ran, I was out there, I had a 75 pound sandbag and I'm doing um, lunges on the oval. And he's like, are you Scott? I'm like, yeah. And so we go and we start running. So a number of months later, uh, I run the Spartan races and uh, Gary and I become friends. He becomes, I go to work for him. That's a whole other story. Uh, probably for another podcast at the rate mm-hmm. I'm talking. And uh, so Paul's like, hey, my wife has got this thing called CrossFit. And I looked it up and I'm like, no way in hell. Those people don't know how to do a pull up. They don't, uh, I don't know what they're doing. They're crazy. And I'm like, maybe I'll give it a shot. So I go and I'm like, I'll just do one class. And man, I loved it. It kicked my ass. And uh, I loved it for a lot of reasons. One, that it was totally... Um, it was non-judgmental. They're like, you know, for the little uh, introduction, they're like, can you do a pull-up? I do a couple pull-ups and that was great. And then they put me down in a workout and I was just like, I was wiped out. And I was like, how could this possibly be? I was running 30 miles a week. I was doing all these burpees and, you know, lifting sandbags. How could I just be just annihilated? And it, and so that's, I got hooked on it. So Paul and Willow and I, and my wife at the time, we started doing CrossFit, I think in 2013. And it's pretty much been a part of my life ever since. Uh, and I just, I loved it. I loved it because it, I was missing martial arts and it has that community. Mm-hmm. It has the skill set challenge that I really like of how my body works in kinesthetic space. Um, I've never been much on resistance training and I, I'd never realized how much I love being under the bar. Mm-hmm. It was like, I love being under the weight and it feels good. It's like, my God, I've missed out on 30 years of lifting weights. And it's yeah. like, I could just shoot myself. Well, I mean, it's not something like to me, like you said, under weight, like a squat, just time under tension. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a, a cheesy thing they talk about. I think Paul's talked about this before with me, but like, it's the idea that there's a lot to be learned under mm-hmm. a very short range of motion, yeah. a slow range of motion under tension, yeah. doing it again or whatever. But yeah. Well, it's crazy. The number of lessons, like we joke about it all the time. You know, now that we work out of a garage, I love going to the gym to, you know, uh, CrossFit gym to work out. Mm -hmm. But working out of the garage, we have a, it's a blessing and a curse. A curse, you miss some of the camaraderie, but it's a blessing in that you get to spend a lot of time inside your head working Mm -hmm. in an isolated space. Um, And I've always been able to operate independent like that. And I like that. But the... um, the lessons that you get, like the idea of understanding that in the middle of a long workout, the grinders, which I love, the that's my real, my, I love it. Um, and I'll be, and it's not about the next set of reps. It's not about the reps that you've done. It's about the bar in front of you, the one rep you have to do mm-hmm. over and over. And it's uh, very much like, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Zen meditation. It's a mantra, picking up the bar and putting it down. Why? It's making me better. But am I doing anything with it? No. Yes. It's like all that goes through your head. Mm-hmm. There's a great structure behind it. I mean, our entire culture is built on philosophical precepts like that. Um, and uh, I love the lessons that it that it teaches me every time I get under the under the bar. Uh, you know, whether it's Paul has cooked up some crazy, you know, 500 calorie bike sprint where afterwards I can't walk and I'm crying to uh, ones where, you know, his the, these mythic birthday wads he comes up with where, uh, you know, everybody in the whole block is crying. So not just me. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we won't, we won't go too far into it because I, I would like to get you and uh, Paul 
Yeah. We talked about on, on the same point, but uh, um, so what do you do? Like what? <laughs> I, I, again, we talked about the, like, what, what do what, I what, do? What is, like what, what we, we've done the whole background. Um, yeah. But like, what, what is your current, um, I guess, paid gig? My paid gig. Cause, cause so, what, I, what I always consider yeah. you is you're, you're very much like a, um, an extreme hobbyist, meaning whatever yeah. you get into, you, you get to the point where you go from a hobbyist to a very, I, I would imagine a very, um, trained hobbyist in certain yeah. aspects. Like you, you do put a lot into whatever you yeah. go into, but like, what do you do now from a job? And this might be the same thing. It might have yeah. been a hobby that turns into a profession that's paid. I don't know. Well, I, strangely enough, I never thought I would work in an office. You know, I always saw myself being a photographer or yeah. teaching in a school. So I studied art history or fine art. Um, so when I lived, when I was in, um, I moved up to Burlington and I closed down Perseo Engineering and uh, I got a temp job working for IDX, a software company in the healthcare field. And I was doing like low level account management and it was okay. I got paid so much money I couldn't believe it compared to teaching art. But in the big scheme of things, it wasn't a whole lot of money now looking back. But uh, I learned a lot and I... Uh, was really good at it for a couple reasons. Um, I think one of it was that all the years I spent uh, traveling and making art, I could come up with creative solutions, I could work efficiently, and I could talk to people of, I could talk to engineers, I could talk to uh, other account managers, I could talk to CEOs, I could talk to radiologists and doctors, and uh, I came across, and I still come across as non-threatening, which helps in the conversation, and I could solve their problems for them. And then I had enough skills uh, from a technical aspect that I could learn very rapidly. Then uh, IDX got bought by GE, and my job morphed into uh, managing engineers to do software rollout. And so I learned about agile systems, and I learned about how to manage um, software rollouts and how to manage uh, larger projects. And then, uh, like I said earlier, I was training with this guy, Gary Margolis, and uh, it turned out that in all the preparation for running these Spartan races, I ended up getting interviewed to help him build a company that built software for mobile phones. So um, he sort of seduced me out of working for GE Healthcare to work for his company, Campus Sentinel, where we built uh, white-labeled mobile apps for uh, colleges and universities that would provide uh, detailed crime statistics and information, uh, contact information for students to go right on their phone. And this was uh, maybe, what, five years ago? And also I worked uh, part-time for his uh, sister company, Margolis Healing Associates, doing project management. And then in the process of this company, it evolved into software as a service. So Social Sentinel is what it became. Now, Social Sentinel is a, a threat alert service for social media. And uh, it started out as a couple of developers and um, a couple of uh, salespeople and a couple of, uh, of uh, uh, account managers. And it was a very small company but has morphed and grown very, very rapidly over the past two years um, into a very large company with 50 employees and uh, servicing about 400 clients all over the United States. Um, And that's what we do is uh, the software is set up so that a client can receive alerts that are social media posts that are threatening of a public safety nature out in the public sphere. 
And so we're able to deliver it to the, uh, a social media post in very rapid time so that they could uh, intervene before something tragic happens. Now, what's my role in all of this? It's shifted around a lot. So at first I did, um, uh, I helped build the mobile apps by managing developers and then rolling it and implementing it with clients. And then uh, it morphed into helping build proprietary uh, libraries of uh, terms, phrases, keywords, and concepts and ideas inside the libraries that we would use as a search tool in social media. And, uh, and so I did that for a number of years, working and helping build a team and working with developers to sort of uh, move the software forward. And all the time, I'm always trying to learn. So it was a great place for me to uh, work with psychologists, uh, counselors, police officers to learn what is public safety, what does it mean for a public safety issue? And then also learn about social media at large. Uh, what is the language of social media? What does it mean when someone posts something on Twitter? Uh, how do I associate that post to a client? How do I associate a statement to a user? Um, so there's a lot of things to navigate there. There's, uh, there's legal aspects, terms of use aspects with uh, the different social media platforms, and I've been engaged with all of that in uh, writing the proposals for uh, terms of use, um, uh, managing clients, meeting with clients, um, so I do a little bit of everything. So now, right now, I'm the director of operations, and so I have a couple of different teams that I work with. I work with the other uh, product leaders, uh, with the developers, uh, other product owners, to develop other uh, tool sets for our clients to be successful. Um, underneath me, I've got uh, some uh, analysts uh, that work on... Uh, maintaining and expanding our library of harm. Uh, I also work with a team of analysts who onboard clients and also a team who, of analysts who uh, optimize accounts so that the software can be configured for optimal results. And it can be, our clients range from a single small high school to uh, the largest Ivy League schools and the, some of the largest universities in the world and uh, Ivy League schools. So this is all, pu but it's public safety is the yeah. main public safety. Well, it? yeah. So what we do is we, uh, we work, we have partnerships with social media platforms and we search for threats on social media. So an example might be someone will say, I brought a gun to school today. I brought a gun to class today. They post that on Twitter. We have our tools are available to be able to connect the threat of imminent harm. We're able to grab the post, associate it with a client, and deliver it so that the client can intervene. And, uh, and it's not just like uh, school shootings. We also help people with wellness issues. We help people uh, identify like maybe a water line is broken a building and it's a dangerous situation. So public safety takes a huge, a much larger sort of bent than just school shootings. School shootings is very easy to talk about because it's very popular in the media. Mm -hmm. But uh, the state of public safety is much broader. What, uh, I mean, is that stuff readily available for the most part? I mean, is that, cause I mean, obviously now people post about all, everything and anything. It's but, all public. But but is Anybody what, can go and search for it. No, I know that, but I'm saying, are people actually posting <clears throat> about that stuff? Oh, yeah. So Every if you had, day. So if you had like a, um, you know, obviously like a, you talked about a water line that breaks mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. I'm assuming if, say, it happens in a, a government building, somebody's going to post something, whether it be an yep. Instagram post, story, Twitter yep. feed that says... Yep. 
oh, this sucks, you know, there's water, we're, you know, we got to leave, or yeah. it smells bad, or whatever. Yeah. Then you guys can sit there and be like, okay, what's that problem? Just quickly shoot it out. So now exactly. it's like a... Exactly. Now, how would you get this out to people? Like, with... So say there's a water a water leak, mm-hmm. and potentially contamination of water, or, yeah. or X, whatever. Yeah. Like, how would that... How would someone like me get that? Well, um, so it depends on the community. So, mm-hmm. excuse me, our clients typically are... Um, institutions, higher ed and K-12 districts. Mm-hmm. So let's say that uh, there's a stadium with a football game and uh, an electrical box blows up or a water line breaks. Mm-hmm. A student picks it up and goes, oh my God, there's water all over the place. It's dangerous, I'm scared. Take that post, in context, it's drowning in a billion other Twitter posts. Mm-hmm. So our software is designed with a, a proprietary set of dozens and dozens of tools. And- not just keywords, but uh, even uh, connections, networks, how are things connected in social media to be able to say that this person is a part of this community, which is linked to this client. And then that client has a user. And so we take the post and can deliver it to the user so that they can step in and say, oh my God, this is a situation. I gotta go intervene and, and save it. And I'm assuming this is, keeps you guys busy then? Oh my God, Yeah. crazy busy. Yeah, it's it's funny with um, I, I like the advancement of technology because who would have ever thought that would have been a job ten years ago? Oh, you yeah. know what I mean. It's like yeah. it's such a new job. We just talked, you know, we've kind of talked about photography, still very prevalent, but not mm-hmm. not as in demand as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Where now you have new jobs like this that are more in demand or will become yeah. more in demand, especially with like you know, like you talked about like gun safety and things like that. Yeah. Like I'm sure. I mean, you've gotten to the point where you could probably stop something as extreme. I don't know if you've gotten to the point where that. Yeah, happened. we have wins. So, you know, like some yeah. big ones like that. Wins. Yeah. yeah. So situations where someone makes a post that has imminent threat, mm-hmm. and we or it could commit. be like I hate so and so. Yeah. Like it could be a person that you just say, you know. You yeah. Well, watch a lot out. of times, yeah. Like well, threats, threats. There's a huge gambit, a uh, large uh, different uh, types of threats. Mm-hmm. So there's the there's the the real true threat to harm. I'm gonna bring a gun to school tomorrow and shoot XYZ. That's pretty rare, okay? Now, you see a lot more of where people are, I'm afraid to go to school tomorrow, where they're a victim Mm -hmm. of something that's going on that's implied. Mm -hmm. Then there's also other kinds of threats where I've got a, you uh, you know, don't make me go get my gun. Mm-hmm. where they're like uh, harm will happen in the very near future based on a different kind of action. So the, the threats cover a lot of different stuff. I'm going to blow the building up. I'm going to blow up the school, a different kind of threat, but it exists. It's there. Um, and there, a lot of it is out there. I think the, uh, uh, and I've seen it over the past four years, I have looked at tens of thousands of social media posts to learn from, to monitor the language and the evolution of the language, to look at how the structure of people using it um, has changed over time. And even even in the past three years, people use social media differently. Twitter is used differently. And each one of these new platforms is a new watershed moment. And the use of a medium as a means to communicate, especially a public sphere. No different than Twitter than putting a barrel out on the corner of the street and standing on it and start yelling and preaching what you wanna say. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference in with Twitter is that you can do it in 20 seconds. In the reach is wider. Yeah, well, global, yeah. it's global. Yeah. So, um, and then, uh, but also uh, 
I think I'm coming at it as a 50 year old, mm -hmm. which is very different than an 18 year old. And I think that's where and you, do you have some younger age groups in your within your company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have the full gambit people who are fresh out of school to, you know, people my age, I'm probably one of the oldest people in the company. Mm -hmm. I actually I am the third oldest in the company. So um, but the um, uh, we, we have to have our thumb on the sort of pulse of the younger generations because they're switching platforms very rapidly and we have to uh, evolve and adapt to that. Um, also, the nature of privacy changing over the past few years has been a real, uh, uh, been a culture shift, both in the work that we do and in the use of social media at large. Um, you know, the idea of privacy and private networks, um, access. I mean, this whole idea of uh, what's happened to Facebook over the past three years and the manipulation of politics has uh, really changed the scope of uh, how we interact and what we deem, you know, correct and right in social media in dramatic ways. It was just funny. I was watching a, a documentary the other day. It was, about, it was basically about uh, Facebook and Google. Mm -hmm. How, And I don't know if you've seen this about where people are, they obviously have a ton of information, good yep. and bad, they mm -hmm. use for good and bad, but the thing, and, and they're big, people were complaining like, you know, <clears throat> because of what they've built, do they have too much information, or are they using information they shouldn't be using for different, like, people are yep. using it, but does that necessarily mean now you should take that information and use it for other avenues? Yeah. And it was funny, one of the things they brought up was, what was the chances they could swing, totally swing an election? Mm -hmm. And they, they said they were kind of using examples of like, here's a, here's a focus group of 100 people or whatever it mm -hmm. was. And we're going to focus on their accounts mm -hmm. or whatever the, yeah. the, the subject was. And we're going to put two candidates down. Mm -hmm. One of them is going to see, maybe they Google it. First page of Google is very pro one candidate. Mm -hmm. The other one sees very pro the other one. Then they talked about, let's change out mm -hmm. the fourth article, move it down, put a positive yeah. one, put yeah. a negative one. And what was crazy was they were able to swing quite a bit of people mm -hmm. that, and then when they were polled, these people didn't even know there was a bias, Yeah. but just because of the natural bias of looking at it, they had come mm -hmm. up with their own opinion. So I guess they were kind of looking at it is was cert certain people more censored or painted in better picture or pe mm -hmm. better light mm -hmm. that would affect the voting um, mm -hmm. standards. Now, granted they, they have the means to do that. Mm -hmm. Has it been done? It's you know it's very it, again there's a lot there's a lot more to it but it was, yeah. it was just kind of fascinating the idea of I mean I use it in my business I mean mm -hmm. I from a from ad standpoints I can yeah. target right down to a lot of people just based off your usage search behavior yep. things that um, you're not even putting in but mm -hmm. they can recognize by your buying behavior yep. or hey you put in a credit card you bought something now all of a sudden that's all being spit out somehow yep then now I can figure out that you're you know. Well, uh, that's, you know, exactly you, like a perfect mm -hmm. co or carbon copy image of you that yep. would use whatever our product or service is. Yep. You know, it's uh, absolutely uh, that you look at branding companies now, they have complete access to everything uh, but your identity. That's the one thing they hold back mm -hmm. and because it's the way they're going to monetize it. Douglas Rushkoff, this really interesting writer uh, in, uh, who out of New York City. A professor has an interesting concept that and uh, that the product is us yeah and yeah. that's we and that his the tenet is that you know they should be paying us for access to the product 
And but what because what they're doing is they're monetizing access to everybody else for advertising. And uh, I think that uh, the idea that these few companies have tremendous influence on our culture, it's really something relatively new that we as humans and as a culture are absolutely not prepared to deal with. Mm -hmm. We don't have rules or regulations in place. And I'm not necessarily I'm not saying that's the solution, but I'm saying we don't even have a structure to even begin to talk about it. Yet it's so embedded in our everyday lives already that there's it no way so you, quickly. We yeah, keep, keep up basically. and you we can't take it out. So now that it's here, what are you going to do with it? The genie's out of the bottle. Now, how are we going to exactly. handle it? Um, I think uh, I love the idea. There's another killer writer, uh, Jonathan Haidt, who believes that, you know, good stewardship. So teaching kids coming up to have better online practices, to have a better relationship with the technology. I think Rushkoff would support that as well. Kind of like online etiquette? Well, not just online etiquette, but um, even having a... Uh, technological etiquette. What is your relationship to the technology? Like limiting a kid's access to screen time as a, at a young age, mm -hmm. or teaching them how to, your online presence has, uh, it should have guardrails to protect your future and that you should understand what those are. What does privacy mean? The fact that you're goofing around with your friends and slamming you know, beers underage is not gonna look good when they look at that Facebook or that Twitter or Instagram account when you're trying to get a job. Mm -hmm. The idea that you need to be prepared to deal with that. And these are things that are very new. And I think we're in a, we're in a very strange time dealing with it. And I, don't, I think it's uh, very destabilizing in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, think about it. We could shift an election just by having a company decide to post things in one direction or another mm -hmm. we see it happening all the time and this that kind of manipulation absolutely is nothing new countries the united states russia countries have been doing it for hundreds of years manipulating elections to get things that they want mm -hmm. it's uh it's a, just a different kind of warfare i yeah. think um, social media just put it front and center and it's public i think that's where uh, it becomes really interesting is that uh it's all out there for all of us to see and you can choose to hide from it or you can choose to read and then well wait a second um the education system in america is so bad i didn't get great critical thinking skills so how can i tell the difference between a real news article that's been vetted by an editor and one that's been posted by someone to pay to manipulate my uh consciousness and my decision making and i think that's where um uh, where we fall down tremendously is we don't teach good critical thinking skills in our education system. And having been a professor and taught, uh, I feel like um, I've, uh, I've seen some of the results of that over the years. And it's really difficult. Teaching someone to be critical is uh, much harder than giving someone a skill set of uh, how to produce something. You know, and, and, and I think this kind of ties in. We were talking a little bit about this before, but um, you're finding like podcasts mm -hmm. Take Joe Rogan, yeah. who we both listen to, and he's obviously very popular. I mean, take uh, what's his name, Kanye West. Mm -hmm. Kanye West obviously is you know in in the you know good or bad has been in the media lately with with Trump and stuff. But you know, who knows what to believe? Is yep. it true or bad? So he's going on at some point mm -hmm. Rogan's podcast, yep. which could be a two three hour, yep. and you're going to literally be able to hear his own words unedited, mm -hmm. what he's saying. But you're starting to see, like, you can cut through the bullshit kind of thing where mm -hmm. it there's nothing. I mean, literally, like, Rogan's going to take a podcast, yep. put it out. He actually will tape it live, yep. and he'll let you hear everything the guy wants to mm -hmm. say. And it literally give him a platform. But it's funny that now that, like, even this podcast, like, you can download this podcast and listen to it. I have very little money, very yep. little resources, but I can somehow put a 
produce a show to put out mm-hmm. that people can mm-hmm. listen to. But I think we're going to find more and more that media <clears throat> is going to be people are going to go direct to the source versus yep. getting it, you know like you said, edited down, filtered down and yep. put out the final product where you can go very raw right to Joe Rogan's mm-hmm. free podcast that you yep. can listen to and you can hear it in its entirety, which I think is going to allow people, I'm hoping at some point, elections, they kind of do this a little bit with like the town halls and, mm-hmm. and things like that where, or, or the debates where you can yep. actually like, like say what you want to say. Like this yep. is, we're not going to, we're putting out what you're actually going to mm-hmm. say. I think you're going to see more and more politicians going on to these major pot or podcasts and yep. now get put out and it's like here's a raw two-hour interview yep. with you know the governor the the senator mm-hmm. the the president um to be or, or president yep. running um where they can have a platform where they can actually really give their their true essence in a conversation yep. versus it being filtered down and edited and put out how they want to try to spin yep. it yeah um well we're seeing yeah. a shift in the media yeah. um think about it we've had podcast to some degree for you know 20 30 years think in terms of like fresh we've air. been old, old radios exactly yeah. that's what i was just getting to radio so where people could be interviewed for long periods of time that fell out of favor because of tv then the attention span of someone today from in the 50s has changed dramatically so now the attention span is measured in less than two minutes whereas before it could have been hours so um by the medium shifting again now to this digital format of like the podcast I think is uh, opening a door of stepping back and saying, hey, wait, if we're going to have a a debate or a discourse, 30 seconds, 90 seconds is not enough time to do it because prior we were rewarding people who could talk fast, spin something in a particular light and meet a network's needs to sell ads. Whereas this, we're not selling anything. Mm. We're just having a long conversation. And I think it allows us to dig in and sort of sink our teeth into the marrow of what the real problems are and really look at solutions, something we've never been able to do on such a broad scale. Because you're going to download this and it's going to be available to a billion people. By tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And which I think is an amazing, powerful tool. Um, but then again, you know, uh, you got to get it out. If you're going to make a statement and you want to make change, you better find a medium that's going to make that change for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, the, the time we live in is just incredible for uh, the ability for us to evolve very rapidly if we can keep from killing ourselves in the process. Yeah. You know? Well, I think it's like when they talk about information coming out, I don't know what the stats are, but like the amount of information produced just today yeah. was x amount over probably what it was all the way up to probably 2008 Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. just every day like to add that all together yeah there was more produced in a tweet in an Mm -hmm. instagram post in a facebook post in a podcast download or whatever that's put out every single day it's just Mm -hmm. such an exponential growth that it's like that's why i think podcasts are coming back is because like i'll watch video and stuff but i'm busy like for me to sit there and like focus on a video now I can listen, mm-hmm. but I'm doing something else where it's yep. just coming in. You know, it's like listening to the radio. It's like yep. you can do mindless work or do something yep. where I don't have to focus on. And I think, like you said, people's attention span has gotten much shorter. Mm-hmm. There's only a certain amount of, like, you can intake in a day, yep. data input in a day. And I think that the podcast, people are almost stripping out a lot of stuff yep. and just getting down back to going back 60, 70 mm-hmm. years to what, what – it's like, it's like fashion. Like everything's come full yep. circle. So yep. now we're back to that. And at some point, it's going to get into like the VR world, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. like the rebirth of television in a different yeah. different form. Yeah. Um, 
We're also things fascinating. We're probably touching on uh, some of the buttons that have evolved in our human biology. Because you got to think about it. Before the press, everything was a verbal. We didn't write anything down. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to write down. So everything, you had to memorize everything. Stories, narratives, these uh, critical components of our culture, which, you know, if you read things like... um, uh, the the work of The Power of Myth uh, by Joseph Campbell. The idea that all of these different cultures all revered the same things, the same symbols and same stories occur over and over and over. Why? Because they're powerful. Why? Because they're human. Why? Because it allows us to communicate you things. Mean like, you mean like themes? Yeah, themes, okay. symbols, water. You know, the idea of like uh, biblical themes show up in Camaraderie stuff. people. Oh, yeah, community, yeah. all these different mm-hmm. tools. And in some aspects, even your mere su- your survival was built into those stories like the idea of the ancient mariners there were all these myths of the stars and the connections together well the reason those myths were there was because knowing which stars were up at different times of the year will tell you how to sail home so very oh, yeah. powerful maritime stuff yeah so the um but getting back to this sort of stuff uh getting someone's attention for three hours you know i'm driving in the car i have a three-hour commute three days four days a week on good days three mm-hmm. hours mm-hmm. um the this idea that i can go back to an oral culture and listen to someone i might not be engaging one-on-one but i'm getting that input in a way that's very powerful that uh, tv i don't think has ever really had not like this and not on such a diverse scale and i think we're sort of stepping way back in the time machine biologically and i think it's really resonating with a lot of people today and uh well, do you think it's like a theme of, we we're just talking about color photo back to black and white? We're almost oh, yeah. stripping, like in the sense though, you're stripping like, so you have the, the colored photo, if you strip yeah. it down to where it's like video, um, yeah. you know, but you're stripping it back down to a small, like a simpler mm-hmm. voice standard or we don't, we're not, it's not, uh, it's, nothing's taken away from the voice by mm-hmm. putting a picture there. Yeah. So I think it's almost like you said kind of simplifying it down but allows you more to focus on yeah. what's being said versus what's being said what's their body image what's their uh, or what's their uh, nonverbal cues and mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. where it really allows you just like nobody I mean obviously we're taping this but like <laughs> but if nobody watches yeah. that and they listen more people can listen to this yeah. they can't see what we're doing they yeah. can't see if we're grabbing a coffee or making yeah. a funny look or co- yeah. you know making a hand motion so but what's it highlighting ideas yeah communication and i think that's that's the critical point i think it was a sam harris podcast that i was listening to that he spent some time uh talking about the this idea that you know the podcast as a as a mode of communication is amazing because it does whittle it down to the you're debating the ideas mm-hmm. you're not debating the pretty colors you're not debating uh, how good you look or how well you're presented in a room full of people it's all about what's uh, the ideas coming out of your mouth and can you get them across in a way that's clear, concise, fits the narrative and actually will make the debate, you know, understandable. Yeah. And I think it's bringing a lot of light on debate in general that has been washed away because of TV and news bites and the system had developed in a way. And I think and I hate to say this, but I think uh Uh, corporations and companies at large and this idea of everything being monetized has really devalued uh, communication between people it's not always about money it's about connection and Mm -hmm. humanity and I think that's uh, uh, something that's been lost and we're just sort of getting our getting back again because of uh, being able to we have a medium to do it Um, I still think social media and I still uh, is a problem in that it's a false sense of connection 
um, and it's sort of one-sided, but that's a, that's a whole other argument. Yeah. But I think um, the way of taking advantage of the medium like this is um, it's, uh, it's sort of empowering to individuals and empowering to communities. And I think we're really going to see it blossom in the next few years. If you look at how communities like in Vermont's kind of unique, uh, but I think in one respect, um, was it the front porch forums? bringing communities together to share things, to be able to do things that are powerful and positive for a community um, would never have been possible without these kinds of mediums. No, I agree. I, I think, um, I mean, I, that's, that's what I get out of a lot of it mm -hmm. in podcasts. I mean, for me, we're kind of joking. There's some that you can actually learn from in mm -hmm. the sense that they, there's some substance to it. Yeah. And then there's some that's yeah. just escapism where we yeah. just listen to have a cheap laugh. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, th I think just kind of like, wind down from the day or yeah. just like you know kind of no, mind's not in it um but i like you were talking about on like this i mean nobody's getting paid on this like literally yeah. like when you talked about uh like i know obviously like the bigger podcast ads happen but mm -hmm. like i i could care less like i, I like yeah. to me it's just more of the person i'm talking to yeah. and trying to trying to you know have a long-form conversation without phones mm -hmm. i mean without like that doesn't happen often. My day yeah. never happens. I have my phone on me 99% yeah. of the time. Yeah. This is two to three hours of my, my day where I, I love it. Like mm -hmm. I, I get, I'm so refreshed when I don't have to look at my phone. Yeah. Um, it's like flying in an airplane mm -hmm. or being back in the day before I had it, being in Canada without service, like, you yeah. know, you have your phone. I loved it. But, uh, no, I think just the, the idea of trying to, to, to really just bring it back to a conversation that people have been having for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. I mean, now obviously people can listen in on it, but I think yeah. there's a portion of it. It's like storytelling. Yeah. I think there's still a portion of that that, that rings true. Um, I find that there's a bit, I mean, they're increasing, podcasts are increasing, but I think it's the idea that people can listen to or be a fly on the wall in a conversation mm -hmm. of someone they like. Like I, I, was, I was talking to somebody today and they were thinking about doing a podcast, but they wanted to really find a niche, yeah. which I think it's great if you want mm -hmm. to do that. My, my idea is I, I really don't have any probably wasn't thought out the best, but it's just mm -hmm. more of like a, uh, a very selfish thing I like yeah. doing the podcast because I just think it's like, hey, I can talk to people that I've I've known you, but you know, there's a couple people that I've already have done or have kind of lined up to do that I've never even met before. Literally mm -hmm. like one person a day I set up, never met her in my life. Yeah. And I was just like, you want to you wanna do this thing? She's like, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. I'm like, I don't know who she is. I've talked to her a few times, yeah. but that's it. I don't even know what she looks like. So I guess it'd be someone could walk in and just say yeah. to that person I'd just yeah. like, oh okay cool but uh so what what uh what of course I'm always kind of expanding my, my reach what what uh what podcast do you listen to oh I listen like, to lots because you obviously um, have t car time yeah I get a lot of time so it really depends on my mood um mm. some of the really good ones are like um uh like Joe Rogan now I, I might not agree with all of his politics, but mm -hmm. he has a, a fantastic interview style that I really like, and he's able to open up people. So obviously, so there's Joe Rogan, and he's prolific, so I can pick and choose the ones. You know, now, I don't listen to all the comedians, uh, but I listen to people. Elon Musk was very interesting. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, people of uh, different characters I like a lot. And he's able to um, bring the conversation around and make people human, which is fun. Um, Sam Harris is another one I love, a uh, contemporary philosopher. Uh, uh, tangentially speaking, uh, the author, I, his name escapes me now, it's been a long, I've been up since 
4.30 this morning. <laughs> so um, uh, that's another really good one. What's uh, that called? Uh, tangentially speaking, it's Chris, um, shit, I forgot his last name. He wrote the book Sex at Dawn, a fantastic book, by the way. And so he just interviews people um, uh, from all walks of life. Uh, it could be a porn mogul to uh, a guy who studies, uh, you know, uh, feces of nomadic herders. That's, and, what, that's what his books or his podcast is about? All of, they're all different. Every one of them. Really? He'll have a podcast. He'll have a podcast out of his van in the middle of the desert, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, trans, transgently. Tangentially. Tangentially speaking. speaking. Yep. I have a hard time pronouncing words. Yeah. So. And it's yeah. uh, that's a fun one. Um, let's see. Uh, well, you know the usual ones. Also, like um, uh, what's the one? History. Um, hardcore history. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Dan Carlin. Yep. Yeah. History on fire. Uh, he's a contemporary of Dan Carlin. He's an Italian who speaks English, uh, who talks about historical components and he's a martial artist. So he's got some killer, just killer podcasts on like gladiators and, uh, uh, the 47 Ronin stories of Japan. And, uh, so he's another good one. Um, who else? Uh, there's a ton. I sometimes will just get on and just randomly look for one like, uh, uh, people who read classics, like I might listen to, there was one I was listening to, the Bhagavad Gita, this famous Indian text. It was fun to listen to someone read it in Indian, with an Indian accent. Um, uh, trying to think what else has been on my recent cycle. There's a couple of others. Um, uh, let me grab my phone. I'll tell you, because there's, there's a list of them. So do, do you do you ever get this is what I'm kind of feeling at yeah. some some portions I get almost overwhelmed at, at times because yeah. it's you try to keep up on them and I'm like I don't even really listen to mine like I'll post them yeah. and, you know like I'll listen to them just to make sure it doesn't sound bad like yep. not not like what we're saying but just like does it there's no background echo which I had on one unfortunately yeah. but there's things I try to learn but yeah well it covers like all the things I'm interested in like uh, Rich Roll like the guy um, uh, who's a um, endurance athlete. Um, uh, rich role um then there's uh uh oh this one must triumph that's another fun one um what is it called must triumph by sam yang his are really short s-k s-a-m-y-a-n-g sam yang yeah no no say what's the name of the must triumph m-u-s-k m-u-s-t must oh must okay yeah um really fun uh martial arts driven street level philosophy uh each one of his posts is like three minutes totally consumable oh, like gotcha, really gotcha. fast um art of manliness is kind of fun uh for some of them uh star talk radio uh, my i'm really my it's clear my uh my tastes are pretty diverse so it's all yeah. over the chart um there was another one that the guy died and it was really a, a letdown because his posts were his um barbell buddha podcast is that so, still going no, that, I, but those are all because he died. Chris Moore died, yeah, but, but, but his, he still has his, his own. Because they're still was up. he part of Barbell Shrugged? Yeah, Barbell Shrugged. But, yeah, but it's a different one. Yeah. Okay. It's fantastic, and his book is amazing. I, I know, well, I know Paul speaks very highly of the book. Yeah, it's really amazing. Uh, Jocko podcast. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson has been a fun one. I've really enjoyed listening to a lot of his podcasts. He's a Toronto guy. Yep. Um, and it's funny; he gets me in arguments with a lot of people. Uh, I think part of it is that um, 
Uh, I think a lot of people read articles about him, but don't listen or read his books. And I've read some of his books mm -hmm. and I gotta say, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And the guy really knows his shit about psychology and psychotherapy and the way in which he weaves relationships between uh, your existence and your functioning in this society with your psychological state at large is pretty amazing. How he draws on uh, religious themes, uh, stories from the Bible, stories from our childhood like Pinocchio, and how there are much deeper, larger um, uh, revelations that come out of that if you apply it in certain ways. And I think um, uh, I feel really lucky in that uh, in studying art history, I was able to uh, spend some time to learn history and its relationship to things in the visual world. And a lot of uh, art history had a lot of uh, mythological underpinnings, uh, especially art of uh, sort of the... Uh, uh, sort of renaissance and that time period uh, moving forward from the renaissance into the enlightenment and the paintings were highly valued but they had a lot of uh, mythological mythological structures and so I studied some of the mythology and then I realized that you know oh wow you know mythology applies to every day now just as much as it did 2,000 years ago so yeah. that's something I would, I would like to um to learn at some point is mythology. I've never really learned it. Like, yeah. I mean, I know some co constellations and stuff, but just yeah. like really trying to like kind of nerd out on that. I think would be fun. Like, I like yeah. I like reading. I try to make time to read. Mm -hmm. um, but even stuff like that, I think it's just kind of cool. Like topics I've never learned about. Yeah. Because a lot of times I get more towards nonfiction, where I yeah. probably I, I don't know if that that's still probably nonfiction, but it's it's different kind of nonfiction than I'm mm -hmm. used to. Um, well, it's um, a lot of it is dense, mm -hmm. and because look at the time period, you figure it was written in a time when they didn't write anything down. So oral tradition. So you've got these long, long tracks of text that you have to process. And so when you look at it uh, in those kinds of terms, you have to set aside long periods of time mm -hmm. to really mull it over and to think slowly. Like a couple of years ago, I reread The Odyssey by Homer, and I was astonished at how... Um, applicable it was to everyday life, a text, one of the oldest texts we have. And it was amazing, but it was difficult to read. I had forgotten that it's not something easy to just pick up and whip through like a lot of things that we read today. And I've even found my attention span has been uh, curved somewhat over the past 30 years based yeah. on TV and the internet and technology, I find myself sometimes rushing to get the cliff notes on something. They don't even have cliff notes anymore. Now is it the websites for dummies? It's like, yeah. I don't have time to read the whole book. I need to, I Do need you still to read a lot or try to, uh, I try to read every day, at least for a few minutes. Um, I have sort of been transitioning away from books to sort of the tablet only because of uh, convenience. Can you get into that? The tablet? I've always been, I mean, I got a bookshelf here. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm literally, I'm, I'm a page. I got a, I've never really given the tablet a yeah. shot, but yeah. I do like the idea of, I'm a slow reader, so I like the idea that I'm making progress through a, <laughs> through yeah. a book. The tablet's hard, it's hard on the eyes, mm -hmm. but it's getting better. Um, I've got like a second generation iPad, and so it's been it's been good. Um, I, What's funny is that I have a lot of books in my library at home, and I can literally walk up to a book and suddenly remember where things are in it that I just can't do with an electronic file. Mm -hmm. Just does, it's not the same. Yeah, I, yeah. And yeah. but it's also um, experiential. The smell of the book pages, the idea that I can thumb a corner if I need to. But the majority of my books, I, I write in a lot of books too. Do you? like I, I underline or make notes? Yeah. In that. yeah. I did a lot in school, but not so much now. Uh, but the books I have now are very different. Like um, I. 
I kept a lot of the like philosophy books and art history books that I had, especially the big tomes. Um, and I have a lot of how to do books. Like, you know, when I was working on the dome, I got books on cabinetry and home, you know, wiring and stuff just so I could learn to do it. Well, like pre YouTube kind of stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But even now I find YouTube, if it, if you can't hold my attention, hold it, I'm not going to watch it. I'll put it on three triple x speed until i get to the part i want to see mm-hmm. um i find it to be really frustrating yeah i think that's better okay why well, was it uh, I, was getting, like, I kept getting like a little static I'm like, yeah what's that it's like yeah. I'm, I'm trying to like now, the phone's dying so I'm oh not maybe surprised. that's it I, yeah. I usually um i don't think i've like I, my phone's always up there recording but like i don't know if i've ever had anybody actually have a phone here so i was just like yeah. what? <laughs> something's not something's not in here um yeah. oh sorry i forgot uh so we were talking about podcasts and then uh, yeah. history and mythology. Well, then reading, yeah. I mean, yeah. You're, you're an art guy. I I was told also by the same girl. Have you read the the Da Vinci book over there by was it uh, Walter Isaacson? No, I have not read that. Yeah, one. I haven't either so, yet. Yeah. So, but she, she she wasn't a big fan of it. She said yeah. it was kind of dry. So then yeah. I'm like, do I really want? It? It's probably like it looks about a four to five hundred yeah. page book. So I was like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a few other short ones on there that are a quicker read. But well, we'll, we'll it, see. It really depends on what you want to get out of it. There are. Yeah. are are killer books like um uh, i love biographies but i just can't read them they're so hard to read and yet uh it has to be really engaging for me to stay so like i I guess part of it is i like i like studying people that are good at whatever they are are doing Mm -hmm. so like grab something drink yeah actually grab me one too if you don't mind um so the uh so i'm kind of what i'm saying like you take him i got a ben franklin one i have um Actually, I have Jason Kalipa's new book. Yeah, yeah, I so, do. But um, then I have other ones too, like um, like I have Elon Musk on um, uh, what's it called, Audi- Audible, uh-huh. which I haven't listened to yet. But like yeah. I like I like researching people that are successful. Like I yeah. have a book on Twitter over there. I have a book yep. on Snapchat founder. Um, I just like I like seeing what their psyche is and mm-hmm. kind of where they're coming from. Where if I kind of like you going in the past, if I take a book about Elon Musk, who's I would probably be pretty close in saying that he's kind of like a, a close Da Vinci yeah. of our time. Yeah. But if I go back 500 years and look at him, uh, yeah. Da Vinci had a very simple, I say simplified, very yeah. complex at that time, very simplified now because mm-hmm. obviously what they had, but you can find, like you said, themes between the two and then you're yeah. like, okay, that now it's just kind of like, it's, it's coming full circle a little mm-hmm. bit as to we're very different, but not that, that different. Like yeah. we haven't evolved over four, four or 500 years to really change who we are. Right. Like you think about it would be funny this would be kind of like a cool thing if somebody could come up with it. But like, imagine having like a Da Vinci here just talking mm-hmm. and your mind just being blown. You're like, Wait, what? Like even yeah. just talking about him in 1500s, yep. like, oh, he did this, this, and this. And you're like, wait, do you know we have drones that fly around? And he's like, oh, I was actually thinking about that. That'd be a cool, like, you know, yep. like, it'd be kind of funny to, because obviously those guys had, they were people, you know, mm-hmm. I know it sounds stupid, but they had humor. They would sit yep. there and crack jokes and make dumb jokes and stuff too. But it was just funny to kind of put in perspective of how revered they are in history mm-hmm. to like, if you had them in 2019, mm-hmm. he would have had an Instagram account. He, you know, he would have yeah. had a Facebook. So it's kind of, yeah. we're not that different. So Yeah, I think from a, a biological human standpoint, we're very similar. Mm-hmm. Very, very similar. Um, but I think, uh, you know, you have to look at it in the big scope of things. Millions of years of evolution. Ten thousands of years of us being, you know, humans as we are today. And then our culture and all of the development of all of these different sort of understandings from the last thousand years or last 500 years. It's becoming that evolutionary change the evolution is changing and speeding up it's more and more rapid more and more rapid the changes happen quicker, quicker. oh yeah so much, much that's what I was thinking we just talked about attention span like mm-hmm. my, my attention span i'm 29 my my attention span at 
17, 18 mm-hmm. was way longer than it is at 29. Yeah. Like 29, I'm looking at, like, I'm the same thing. Like, if I'm even, like, if I got to wait for something to load, yeah. I'm not watching it. Yep. And, and you know, back, back in that day, like, you know, watching commercials. Yeah. Like, it was funny. The Super Bowl just happened. Like, I watched the commercials. Like, I haven't watched commercials in, that's the only time, one time a year I watch commercials. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really watch much TV. So, we're, like, we're in the Netflix age where... You're just fl- you know n- yep. no we don't we, we can we can even skip the intro to the the stupid yep. show that we're watching yep. because we don't want to wa- wait for thirty seconds or a yep. minute for that to pass yeah um, but I'm finding like that's ten years like how much we've shifted and part of this is that information overload that happens yeah. every single day I think that you know from fifteen hundreds to nineteen hundred mm-hmm. was very was was slow mm-hmm. and now it's just slowly picked picked mm-hmm. picked up and mm-hmm. now it's just ramped right up to yep. You know where are we going to be ten years from now? Mm-hmm. Our, our attention span is going to be shorter, longer. Now, podcast has definitely taken me a step back. Yeah, but well, that's about of, the only thing I'm taking a step back in because I'm very much like now. Think now. of uh, Netflix. So um, these new series. So yeah. excuse me. Um, I love movies. Absolutely adore. And in fact, uh, I watched. I used to watch a lot of movies. I don't watch nearly as many movies, and I haven't over the years for a couple of reasons. One, you have a farm, and you can't watch movies. You, you have got, kids now. You have yeah. kids, can't watch movies. However, I do find myself really attracted to, uh, I think of a, uh, a long movie is wonderful for a couple of reasons. One, uh, from an artistic perspective, you have a lot of things that really appeal to me as a photographer. Composition, light, um, mm-hmm. the narrative, the story, the uh, interhuman, uh, the interpersonal communications. Um, I like to be taken on a journey. I like to learn things. Now, um, let's say if you take a step back 10 years ago, uh, the longest narrative you were going to see was going to be a sitcom like Friends over 25 years, or a two- or three-hour movie. Maybe Star Wars, a couple of two-hour movies. But now, Netflix and YouTube will actually commission a series, or HBO or Showtime, a series of highly developed uh, storylines and narratives that are intertwined that can really hold my attention for multiple, multiple hours binge-watching. And seasons. and Seasons, yeah. yeah. Things like... Um, a true detective or game of thrones or mm-hmm. um you know there's there's a ton of them out there and i think the medium just like podcasting it's allowing artists more room to move we have a bigger palette and a bigger plate to work with and as a consumer of that i think this is a real a wonderful time because now it's like well great um I can watch an entire season of True Detective over a couple of days and become totally immersed in these other characters and in the narrative and maybe find some understanding in there that I can apply to my own life. Mm -hmm. Whereas with traditional television, that would have taken six months and it wouldn't have been near. Or 20 minutes a week. Exactly. And not been nearly as powerful. And I would have had to have dealt with thousands of commercials. Whereas here I can totally, uh, you know, supersede that. And I think that's going to be, that's an amazing blessing of this time period. But like the podcast, my attention span is, uh, is very valuable. Mm-hmm. And if I'm willing to invest it in something, the production quality has got to be fairly high. And it's got to be on a platform that is easy to access when I want to access it. Mm-hmm. So we're absolutely empowering the individual in the way in which these, uh, these mediums are evolving. 
and I'm not saying that, uh, you know, uh, empowering uh, the individual for everything is the answer. But in this case, I think it's wonderful from an artistic creative standpoint, because you've given those actors and a director um, more than two or three hours. You've given them days of time in which to uh, pull apart um, the uh, sort of uh, understanding of who we are as humans, our psychological structure, the uh, way in which we uh, debate or argue or make decisions, good and bad, and how do we handle that and deal with those? Well, I think it, you take, um, I mean, how, how many, I, I know people kind of joke on it, but how many people have gotten famous off Instagram and YouTube? Yeah. A lot of people. There's multimillionaires that all the multimillion dollar uh, video gamers. Yep. I mean, it's the thing is, though, <clears throat> nothing's changed. People mm -hmm. are still paying, paying you if the demand slash attention's there. Yep. But, you know, you look at these Instagram accounts that have millions of followers, like, Mm -hmm. what, what like and then half time you're looking at me like what do you even do yeah like i'll i'll be scrolling through i'm, I'm totally out of whack with like current events mm -hmm. like i have a hard time even talking to a couple of the girls at work here about like who's a who's a singer right now like if you mm -hmm. go on my ipod i mean the average age of songs my my mine are like when i was in school you know mm -hmm. like um so when you start looking at these people and all of a sudden i'll click on and it'll be like some rapper has got like eight million followers i've not even heard of this yeah. guy like and then you're like, it, it, but it's it's funny that we're in a time period now, where you don't have the gatekeepers anymore. You don't have the people that that will determine if you're kind of from the arts, if your music or pictures mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. written word is popular. You can put it on a blog. You can make a video. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think Justin Bieber was discovered by YouTube. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, there's these people that you because now they can access and put it out to people, yeah. and now and now they're allowing actual people to make the the decision whether or not they are about mm -hmm. or are are to the level or or deserve your your attention or, mm -hmm. or or admiration you never had that back in the day you had executives from companies that would be yep. like eh. so you're talking about a couple people making a decision versus i'm just going to put it out and let everybody yep. decide and i think you're getting that with pictures definitely with music because mm -hmm. anybody can put podcasts like i would never have had this 10 years ago like yep. I mean, I could, I could have put it out, but now who's going to listen to it? I didn't have a platform to put it out. Now you have iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. Mm -hmm. Like you can mm -hmm. actually put it literally to someone's phone that they can watch. Yep. And I, I think now it's just, again, it's, it's a whole cultural shift based on a couple app. I mean, obviously the internet, yep. but then internet slash smartphone slash yep. tablet slash iWatch, right? mm -hmm. whatever the watch, you know what it is that, I don't know. I just think it's, I think that's very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, from, I remember back like, you know, 15 years ago. Uh, the, the, the discussion online was we need content creators. There's not enough content to fit the demand. Yeah. So now we've got millions of people producing tremendous amounts of content. So what's going to happen is the really good content is going to float to the top. There will be taste makers who yeah. will be dictating the tastes of people because they are a step ahead or they have some, some, I don't know, je ne sais quoi, something that the people want to see and they will be rewarded for it. Um, the question, yeah. you know, is to what degree, to what value, what yeah. is it? Um, uh, sort of, I'm all the time flipping through, I don't know, YouTube at night is like my, um, my secret vice, you know, I'll flip yeah, through the, and just the same, yeah. find stuff. Just, I got go down rabbit holes of just, Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, uh, one minute I'm looking at some 12 year old who built a fusion reactor. The next minute I'm watching the son of a fisherman's TV show that I watched when I was seven years old, who's now a professional fisherman. I'm like, what the hell? How did I go down this rabbit hole? Mm -hmm. But the, the idea that the content is being created, the content is there. 
And now we have to become experts at searching and experts at filtering to find the content we want to see that resonates with us. And I think that's where the platforms really have, uh, they, uh, that's where they have all the, the keys to the kingdom and they're making it very difficult and very, uh, and very easy at the same time for us. Well, I thought it was, it was funny. You just mentioned that like today we've had this door, our, our bathroom door or our master bath door yeah. is just jamming to mm-hmm. the point where like you, I physically have to like press into it to pop yeah. it out. So I'm not super handy. So I'm, I, I kind of had an idea yeah. like the, the, the fixes that would actually need to be done to, to, to fix it. So I Googled today how to make a door not stick literally mm-hmm. like, and pages came up of people putting that up like that's such a small thing like how to how to fix a i don't know fix a paper cut like you can go i mean all these just like really random things people have made some kind of content around Mm -hmm. it but i think that's the beauty of it like that's i mean that's something i do in business wise like i'm putting out information do i know more than the next person i don't know that's for you to decide but Mm -hmm. i'm actually putting it out there for you to see at least i I show that i know it and um that's but the internet's given me that access you know and um so I think it's all, it's good it's good and bad. I mean, there's yeah. there's pros and cons to yeah. everything. But well, I think uh, what's going to be tough for you and I with young kids, how what are you going to tell your kid about the internet? How are you going to teach him to be a good, not just steward of information, but of his own existence on online? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I I have a model before the digital age before you know to work from, mm-hmm. and I'm going to try and give some of that to my son, but I can't. He's going to be immersed in a world well, that's completely digital. It's a different world. I mean, right now he i mean my, my son's just over a year old he's found out where the button is on my iphone so he mm-hmm. knows that clicking that does stuff on the screen yep. you know and he knows that moving it and of course when he first got it all he did was spin it around he wasn't yep. doing anything with it but now he actually knows well if i hit this that mm-hmm. happens and it's funny when you see like two three-year-olds that are just navigating on an ipad mm-hmm. or an iphone and they're going to the game they want and playing the game i'm like yeah i mean i didn't have a phone until i was like a senior in high school and when, when i say i had a phone like i mean i had mm-hmm. a phone that i could I could text or call on like mm-hmm. it wasn't and you know facebook i didn't get that till i was in college i mean obviously you're even you know you'll laugh and say i didn't get that until <laughs> i was right. in my 40s no, yeah like, i know you're making fun yeah. of my age no, it's, well, right. I'm saying <laughs> the same way. it's like here's this kid saying like oh you got it in college like lucky. Yeah. but it, it, it's the idea of like i i think it was like one of the last give or take a couple years yeah. blowing above me but we were like the last age of where mm-hmm. i didn't grow up in it like i remember everything that I think people before me because it wasn't a big shift now I look at people that are probably probably the kids that are graduating right now they've just that's all they've ever known Mm -hmm. where I think our kids coming up and you obviously have young kids and um, you can't hide it Mm -hmm. because the one thing is if you hide it they're going to be at a disadvantage because that's where all the jobs are going so like to me I don't want to sit there and censor my kid and say you cannot play on the phone and I don't even know if I'm going to be one of those people that is going to what's it called limit their screen time mm-hmm. like to me it's like I, i'm one where you have to be, at least be active mm-hmm. i don't care if you look at your phone because at the end of the day like what do you want them yeah. to do do you want them to read like yeah. i love it when people are like well read a book well people were only reading books back in the day because they didn't have a phone mm-hmm. like you would have been on your phone 1970 mm-hmm. if you, or maybe not you've been one but 1980 you would have been on your phone mm-hmm. versus reading a book you just didn't have access to that yeah. but then as soon as the tv came you wanted to watch the TV yeah. and now it's, you want to be on the computer. Now you want to be on your tablet. Now you mm-hmm. want to be on what, you know, whatever it's going to be in the future. Yeah. But I don't think you limit it. Human, human, like again, humans haven't changed. If you had a TV or an iPhone, yeah. like we just mentioned back in 1400s, I bet you 
Leonardo da Vinci is sitting there scrolling through uh, Instagram, yeah. you know, and it's the attention. But I don't think you. I don't. I don't know. I don't. I haven't really thought about it too much, but I'm not. Really, I don't think I'm going to limit it. My my only thing to my kid is you got to be active in the sense mm-hmm. you can't just sit around and play video games all day. Like yeah. you have to go out, do something, play sports yeah. or, or work out or do something where you're physically helping yourself. Mm-hmm. If you want to use that from a mental perspective, yeah. I think it's great. I mean, I learn stuff every. Day. I learn yeah. it more than I consume versus. I'd, I'd say use internet more. I think as as you do too for more educational purposes mm-hmm. versus recreational escapism yeah. there's there's some there's both but I, I do learn quite a bit like my, yeah. my escapism is learning stuff yeah so I guess you kind of tie into two of it but or tie tie into two but yeah no it's a tough it's a tough road to, uh, to sort of you have a three and seven year old so I mean they're they're yeah. obviously on those platforms yeah not, I would well, say they don't like have Facebook and Instagram but they're using computers the, and phones the, the seven year old taught the three year old how to navigate the iPad faster in like an afternoon, mm-hmm. then it took me days to be able to do things. Yeah. Uh, watching uh, Eleanor, who's who should be three next week, um, watching her learn to play video games from her seven-year-old brother is astonishing. How she can pick up on a controller and immediately start working, and it's like, yeah. holy cow! What am I doing biologically to this kid, wiring her to interact with this tool in this way at such a young age? Um, I don't know if it's healthy, but uh, I think uh, it's very seductive for them. They see it as it's a, a, such a powerful, um, not outlet, but medium mm-hmm. that they don't even understand what's happening to them. And I think that's my fear is that they're going to get programmed by it rather than doing the programming. Rushkoff, again, mm-hmm. a really interesting writer, talks a lot about that. Learn to program or be programmed. Yeah. And that's his shtick about it. And I think there's a lot of power to that, that uh, understanding that um, I don't want to limit what my kid does, but I want him to have an understanding of it. And uh, so uh, a good example is... Uh, he learned about Minecraft from one of his friends. Uh, like the, the video, the video game, 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 Minecraft. And I had the hardest time. I just couldn't understand why he wanted to play. It didn't make any sense to me. So he goes, Dad, I want Minecraft. I want Minecraft. I want to play Minecraft. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I got to thinking. I'm like, I'll let him play Minecraft, but I'm going to make him work for it. So I got a, one of those uh, Kano computers, which is you put the computer together, and then you learn to code. So I... F- sort of in a way, I forced him to learn to code, to learn to play the game he wanted to play. And it was amazing. He took to it like a fish to water. He's like, wow, watch this. I can make things change colors. I can do this by using words. I can make things happen. So trying to maybe surreptitiously give him some tools to see the connection between this world and the digital world so that when he I can't control when he's inside the digital world. He'll at least have some understanding of what it's like outside. Mm-hmm. And I'll continue to try and put things in his hands that will allow him to have a better context for it. Because if you don't have context, you're going to, yeah. you're going to be totally manipulated by it. And I don't want to see that happen. Um, there's no way I can remove it completely. For I don't want him to be a Luddite. He needs to exist in this society and yeah, function. It's not going away. Like it's not, yeah, exactly. And his career will hinge on it no matter what. Yep. So at least this way he'll have a better maybe context of it. But um, it still it worries me all the time because I look at what the backside of the problems are in my business every day is that um, uh, there's a great uh, author, Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Joe Rogan interviewed him once um, as well as did Sam Harris. I think Sam Harris. Killer interviews. He's a uh, 
uh, psychologist, I believe, is what his formal role is. But he did a bunch of big studies around the impact of technology, um, uh, the mobile phone in particular, uh, over the past, say, 30 years. And he tracked it based on self-admittance to hospitals and self-admission of um, depression and mental problems by teenagers. And you're going along and you look at the data points he shows and it's like, okay, wow. So uh, college kids get mobile phones and you see a tiny little uptick in mental health. And then uh, high school kids get phones and then you see a large uptick in mental health, a huge one for girls and not a very big one for boys. And suddenly you realize that there are some connections there between technology and our, our, our mental health in dramatic ways. And in my business, that's what we do is we, people who have problems with mental health, we can identify and we help them get help. And the volume of it on a global or national scale is just astonishing of the people who have problems out there. And it's showing up in, in the public sphere, in the public spaces on social media. I can only imagine what's being hidden and what we don't get access to. Do you think to. that's from like the wanting to fit in, wanting to be you know what I mean like mental health is it something that you know I'm not as like say girls I'm not as pretty as that girl or oh yeah or or could it be like you know that girl's got more likes than I do or she's got more friends or people you know because I think like back when we take when we went to school like if someone was a popular kid it was Mm -hmm. the girl or or guy that was the best looking or the best athlete or something like that we didn't really have anything to go off of. There was yep. no standards besides or who's the popular kid. Yeah. Like, why is that kid the popular kid? Where now there's data on that in the sense of how many likes do you get? Mm-hmm. How many followers do you mm-hmm. have? How many, you know, do people like look up <clears throat> to you? And I don't know if that, that, I think there's there's something to be said by that. I think yeah. some people look at that as like the need to fit in or maybe they're not as, or maybe lack of self, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, self um, esteem, like yeah. lack of self esteem yep. where, maybe they don't have it as much and they need, mm-hmm. and I've even seen people too, if they're on social media, you know, you see the way people post, they'll post, you know, again, to kind of pick on, well, I guess I have both genders, but I think probably more on the girl side, like mm-hmm. girls posting certain, certain photos to make them look better mm-hmm. purely on the sense that I want to get more likes, which is just going to boost my, I guess, false sense of confidence yep. because you're getting it through people just clicking on a photo. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I'm assuming that has because that's become our um, mental health has obviously become a factor, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of it is is technology driven, just because yeah. of the need of now everybody's you it has there's a scoreboard yeah. of of what you can look at. Well, like, um, sort of in a, a couple of ways, I, I can talk about this all day long, so we got to be careful. So, yeah, 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 um, yeah. so people, um, we talk about the understanding of your social footprint as your social graph. What is how do you exist online? In what way? How do you present your outward self? And what is your real state of mind? Now, um, if you look at it from a social media perspective, um, think in terms of uh, like what's on Twitter. One third of Twitter is what you had for breakfast. One third of Twitter is vacation and having fun with your friends. And one third of Twitter is your state of mind. And if you're unhappy, that state of mind is going to be representative of the language inside all those posts. Okay. Now, let's take a step back. Let's look at um, say 25, 30 years ago, uh, we didn't have, uh, cell phones. So girls and boys, teenagers, boys tend to work out their differences, wrestling them with fists. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you and I get into an argument, 
We beat each other up until we figure out who's on top. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, guys tend to be attracted to objects. So we talk about cars and guns and bicycles and that we bond over that. And our community is built over that. And we have cliques as guys, just like girls have cliques. Now, if you look at girls, um, they tend to uh, have more be uh, their social construct, their group is much more powerful because they're verbal. They tend to use their um, much less physical prowess more emotional. and much more emotional. Mm-hmm. And plus the, uh, the verbal skills, they tend to talk through their problems. So uh, before the advent of these mobile phones, if girls were cliquish or uh, would offset, it was always uh, in school verbal in front of each other you have one group versus another or one person being bullied being ostracized Mm -hmm. right so um for guys if one guy was being bullied he could fight back or he could be a victim Mm -hmm. that was just the nature of the way it worked out now uh with the advent of cell phones so the idea that you or i as if we were teenagers we would still love cars we would still come to blows yeah. We would have likes and laugh and make fun of each other. Look at stupid memes. Look at and, stupid yeah. memes. Yeah. But we wouldn't, um, our lives would not be built on what's on that phone. Yeah. But for a girl, it's different because the sense of bullying and the social construct is now filtered through the technology. So now um, their existence is through their existence on the phone, not in person. And the problem is you can't turn it off at school. They mm-hmm. take it home. So um, you might be, uh, for a girl, she might not, not just get a like, she might not get any, um, uh, she, uh, she might get nothing at all, no response at all. So it's the inverse of bullying, of being verbal abuse. She's not getting ignored, any attention. Like, oh, She's being Those ignored. girls aren't liking my stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So then she starts to blame herself. Mm-hmm. Um, also it, uh, the technology allows rabbit holes that we've never had. So she might, uh, have an eating disorder. She might get on Tumblr Mm -hmm. and find out there are thousands of other girls with cries for help with eating disorders. And she's like, wow, uh, I like the way that looks. I can do that too. And suddenly she has a, um, a peer group online that is supporting her making bad decisions Mm -hmm. for her mentally and physically. Guys don't run into that nearly as much. However, uh, guys also can be radicalized online in the same way with the same kinds of groups. Uh, um, Once you uh, sort of have a mental breakdown, you typically will take one of three or four different directions. if you, uh, the way we think about it is if you think of a graph, everybody has ups and downs. Uh, today you got an A in school, uh, tomorrow your dog dies, the day after that you uh, get in a car accident, the day after that uh, you win a lottery ticket for $10. Um, everybody has ups and downs. Um, in some cases, people will have downs and downs and downs. Your dad dies, your dog dies, um, you get reprimanded at school. Well, you can only go down so far before you start to come apart. What I think like a breaking is, point. You may have a breaking point. And at that breaking point, you enter what psychologists call this uh, period just before and just after of magical thinking. You know, they make this decision, they're going to make an act. And so they start giving away their possessions and they start, um, they, uh, start making nonsensical statements like you will, uh, you will, uh, regret tomorrow for what I'm about to do today. And in that breaking point, they can do a couple things. They can get help. They can, uh, 
commit homicide. They can commit suicide. They can uh, get radicalized for terrorism or for uh, like white supremacists, another type of radicalization we have here in America. Um, you know, so that breaking point is really critical in the development of people. So up until uh, 35, 40 years ago, we didn't have a lot of models for people to take action. And the seminal moment was Columbine. Yeah. That changed everything because we had kids who dressed differently, who took action, and there's video of it. They have a, an existence that now is being uh, repeated over and over online. And we see that kind of what uh, we refer to as fandom. So now the technology, not only do we have people who feel connected but are socially more isolated, uh, guys and girls, uh, we have models of people making bad decisions that are being revered in small communities and echo chambers, to use the nomenclature of our day, online, where people can get trapped. Mm -hmm. And it really becomes a dangerous situation and, uh, to get these people help that they need. Uh, and I think that um, the technology has fed this in a way only in the past 20 years, 25 years, that uh, uh, we never could have anticipated. Um, so yeah, I think we're in a, a very strange time when it comes to our relationship with technology. And I think the, the generation that is suffering the most from it are the teenagers who got cell phones in uh, high school mm -hmm. because they've lived it. Uh, they've lived it, and, uh, which is- Pro Probably, I would say the most vulnerable part of your life. Mm -hmm. Probably, you know, between basically teenager, yep. teenager to maybe, I wouldn't even say college. I think people, yep. by the time they get to college, they've kind of got, they've grown out of that a mm -hmm. little bit. Mm -hmm. But I think, 12, 10, 11, 12 to 18, 19. Yep. Like, I think that people are most vulnerable. That, I mean, yep. I, I look at myself. I'm not, I wasn't, I w I've always been a person that wasn't like really too, like I was kind of very mellow all the mm -hmm. way through, but I've noticed my like, my like give a fuck factor has yep. gone much farther down in yep. the last probably four or five years. Yeah. And I'm sure every year it's going to get to the point where I just care less and less about dumb stuff, about yep. stuff that doesn't affect me or it's, 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 it's basically taking positive out of my life and, mm -hmm. and putting negative in whether yep. it's you know you know what i'm getting at if you know mm -hmm. people complaining about stuff or trying to put you down or say stuff and it's like you know what I, i'm not you're just i'm just gonna cut you out and yep. you're just not gonna be, or that topic or theme or like like to me that's kind of politics right yep. now with like i've just you know what mm -hmm. it's not good to me good mm -hmm. or bad i'm just gonna cut that out like news <clears> i'm just gonna kind of cut it out because yep. at the end of the day i only have so much to one to take in and two to give in a yep. day and like if, if i'm getting inputted mm -hmm. negativity i'm only going to probably be filtered and put negativity mm -hmm. out so it's like yeah just cut that out try mm -hmm. to stay a little more on the positive side best you can but but think about it like this so when you were a teenager your frontal lobe wasn't even connected you don't no. really become an adult here in your 20s that's why i heard 25 yeah roughly and, yeah so think of all the bad decisions you made from the time you were 14 to 25 yeah now now imagine every one of those bad decisions is recorded in digital history mm -hmm. and it's on the blockchain permanently yeah it's never going to go away so i think that's um, a pressure that teenagers have today that there's no way we can assume to understand what that's like and yeah, i don't at 13 and 14 you're not you're not making decisions thinking one yeah what's it gonna be like when i'm 25 35 right. 45 55 just, you're just living life and you're like oh crap i would have made that dumb decision exactly exactly and it's gonna be around forever yeah i mean for 
ever. And I think there's not, they don't have a healthy respect for that. And I think that's going to be an issue. Plus, they're so, it's so ingrained in their everyday culture, the existence of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of being connected, always being on, always being, um, you know, needing the likes. It's, uh, it's a very strange world that we're painting these behaviors. Uh, again, uh, you know, Rushkoff uh, talks about, you know, we're being trained like monkeys to follow these little shiny things called likes. Yeah. And the kids don't understand. They can't get context because they're not, they can't get away from it. They're totally embedded in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I take, again, someone that really doesn't care a lot about that stuff, I still check on my phone throughout yeah. the day. Okay, what's the, what's the uh, how, how did that ad or how did that picture, or how did that perform? Am I getting mm-hmm. likes, comments? Am I getting views? Like, yeah. I'm still looking, I'm looking at it more from an analytical standpoint. Mm-hmm. I don't like look at it and be like, oh, that one got 50 and that one got yeah. 10. Yeah. But it's still the same thing. I'm, I'm looking at at least the results mm-hmm. and looking at a like, even though it might be a different reason why I'm looking at it, yeah. but I'm still focused on that yeah. where... But like you said, take someone that's at a very vulnerable age group mm-hmm. that brain's not fully developed. They're amongst a bunch of peers that brains aren't fully developed. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. can just kind of see the, the problems yeah. that it can and go they, down. They, and they can't work it out socially because they only work through the technology. Yeah. Well, well, you even said like back when we were in school, like school day ended at 2.30. Yeah. Everybody went home and whatever drama issues guess yep. what 230 cut off everybody does their own thing then they come back yep. the next day they've had nights to uh sleep it off or just yep. forget about it and then but now you go home and it actually gets amplified mm-hmm. because now the kids aren't in school now they're like i can do whatever i want on this phone yep. and i think that's when attacks or ostracization happens mm-hmm. is almost when you leave school yeah it gets worse yeah which yeah. is a total night and day from what we had. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. Because that was like your Absolutely. quiet time. Go home, watch TV, hang out with your family. Exactly. Come back the next day and exactly. things may have cooled down by that yeah. point. Um, so, Scott, before we we, we um, stay here all night, two yeah. last two things I wanted to, uh, sure. to bring up on kind of a an easier, lighter <laughs> note um, before both Genas kill us. Yeah, no um, doubt. So, one, you're turning 50. Mm-hmm. Good, bad. What, what's your thoughts on that? Or are you just kind of like it's a number? I'm turning 30 yeah. seven days before you. Yeah. Well, so, um, so yeah, it's funny. I always th- I've always been younger than my peers, yeah. and I've always felt the struggle to grow up, to be older and be an adult. Okay. And when I got to my 30s, I realized, Jesus, this is a lot of fun. I don't want to grow up anymore. I want to stay right here. Yeah. Um, that's, when, that's good because I'm going to my 30s. So I like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> so it's, it's good. So I had a great time. I, I had a killer time. I don't regret any of my decisions. Uh, there were some bad ones in there. So yeah. what's the old adage? You know, you don't get wise until you make bad decisions. Yeah, and, there you go. I like that. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, but uh, I am looking forward to being 50 only because I feel like I'm 30. And I yeah. act like I'm 12, if yeah. you ask my wife. Yeah. And I'll continue to be like that because yeah. I think that helps keep me long. And you're constantly and, uh, learning and improving. Like you said, yeah. you're not just like, you're not just settled. Like, I'm good. Yeah. You're always like, what's the next thing I can pursue? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I got to have that inspiration. And I think uh, 50 is just, it's arbitrarily a number, but it's a fun number now because most people who are 50 do not do what I do. And they yeah. can't do what I do because I physically am, you know, I try to stay healthy to a really high level of performance. I, I, yeah, I, I like I like that. I think as you get you get older, you get to now it becomes like stuff that you do at fifty mm-hmm. and at sixty and at seventy is now looked at like holy crap, they're doing it at that age. Where now it's like expected at me turning thirty, yeah. I should be doing X, Y, and Z because I'm in yeah. that age. Yeah. But then it's kind of funny now. You're almost like fighting back the stigma or or, mm-hmm. or the uh, or time as to like 
I mean, even to take someone like a, a Tom Brady, who's yeah. he's like, what is he, 42 now? And he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm back next year. And they're like, mm-hmm. wait, what? And and it's kind of the same as you. Like, you're going in your 50s. Like, I'm, I feel yeah. as young as I was when I was my, like 18. It, you know, exactly. And I'm ready to, a, little, a little wiser, but, uh, yeah, but exactly. still, still the energy <laughs> exactly. of what you want to do. Yeah, and I think it, that's, that's part of it is that our culture has always rewarded the young. Mm-hmm. And we're now getting to the point where that, uh, you know, 30, you know, is the new 20, 40 is the new 30. Well, no, in reality, you know, from, you know, 30 to now 60 or 70, you're the prime of life. Now, mm-hmm. some of my friends have made different decisions than me, uh, for better or for worse. I have a friend who he just retired from 30 years in the military. And I'm like, holy shit, what would I do with 30 years in the military? It's like full ride pension, everything paid off. Mm-hmm. He gets to go have another career and do something else. Yet I'm gonna look back and I'm like, well, yeah. So I had a I had a great time in my yeah. in those years, and uh, I didn't get what I didn't get in financial gain. I got an intellectual gain and experience, yeah. Yeah. And, memories, and it, and I'm gonna continue to do that. Yeah. And I think 50 is uh, it's just a fun marker to work around. Yeah. And uh, so I think uh, like when we do my 50th birthday wad, it's gonna be a doozy. Oh, I'll partake in that. Yeah, yeah. You'll have to be oh, a part of that. We can do a 30. Exactly. 50, so. Exactly. The the uh, the the. the nine birthdays i guess the 80 uh, 89 and uh, 69 so, exactly um and then the last thing um how long was your beard you've had a long beard right at one yeah. point longer the, than what you currently have oh yeah i've had one that was maybe uh, maybe six eight inches that's the longest one okay. ever because I, so. I had one too so i was kind of like we, we both kind of tapered down yeah. the beard to, to, <laughs> I, I i i think i think at a beard level that both the genas that would would yeah. like or prefer so um uh, i love growing them but uh they get to a point after about four months where it gets so itchy i have to shave it and start over and uh, but uh gina prefer by gina prefers uh, a beard a goatee something uh, so because i've seen you when you so this is the other thing I think we have in common. When you shave, yeah. you go from 49 to probably early to mid 30s. <laughs> I think I think you really like. That's funny because I remember one time yeah. you actually shaved your beard when you had the long beard, and I saw you. Yeah. And I didn't recognize you at first. Yeah. I was I did kind of a double take. And I'm yeah. like, Who is that? Shit, yeah. that's <laughs> and I'm kind of the same way when I, yeah. I uh, people go on my Instagram. I, I had a big beard at one point, yeah. and I completely like. Gina thought I was going to go trim it down to this. Yeah. No, no, no. I went all the way down, yeah. um, shaved all the way down the skin, and no, I don't think I'll do it again. I was yeah. just looking at it. I'm like, I went from like probably 26, 27 at the time to yeah. I look like 18, Teen. and I was yeah. like, that's oh, a little, a little too, too much. I got a couple bad, but a week later I was fine. But for a few days, I was, especially I yeah. did it in February about this yeah. time, wasn't smart. But yeah. um, so I think we're going to stop there. Okay. Like I said, we we should probably get home before uh, yeah, before we get, get mad, killed. Um, yeah. Don't worry, we'll have you back on. We'll, we'll get Excellent. call on at some point, and then that one will be. We'll probably dive deeper into the uh, the CrossFit realm that we perfect. We, we had talked. Perfect. But I've had a blast. This has been a lot of fun. I'd yeah, love to do it again. Cool. Oh, so. uh, you probably will because I I write down stuff, and there's probably about thirty things that you came up with that I could t- I could have asked about, but I had to be respectful. There is of- there is so much stuff that else like. Uh, uh, being on archaeological digs, going down in wells to You've pull. done all this? Uh-huh. Yeah, see. Th- so this, there's more stuff. Lots of interesting things. Yeah, so so I, I, I find I've I probably have done some stuff, but not even close. You're just like, I'm like, what do you want to talk about, Scott? You're like, ding, 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 <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And I'm like, wait. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, we can talk about jumping out of airplanes and climbing yeah. mountains, but like, what have you done? You're like, no, no, no. I've done ding, 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 ding. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so well, I guess we'll talk about that. Yeah, so. That would um, be fun. I would love to. No, perfect. So uh, we, we will probably have you back on. That was, that was a fun time. So um, we're going to leave it there. Um, we hope you enjoy episode 12 of the Galen Trombley show we're out thanks for listening to the Galen Trombley show if you want to reach me you can go on Facebook at Galen Trombley on Instagram at Galen Trombley and on YouTube at Galen Trombley 
The spelling, G-A-E-L-A-N-T-R-O-M-B-L-E-Y.